I think the coolest food court uh, ever would have to be uh, Paramus Park Mall in uh, Paramus, New Jersey. The food court itself was one of the kind that uh, is on like a third level with a sort of a, a big gap in the middle, right, looking down at the next level down. And that's actually similar to um, the Newport Center Mall in uh, Jersey City. And I don't know that that particularly lends itself to the best uh, food court energies, right? I think the best ones are just this contiguous space with the, the, you know, the food, you know, companies, the restaurants around the edge, vendors. What do they call them? Hoppers? No, that makes no sense. But you know what I'm saying? And then the the, the central air seating area, which forms this kind of rambling energy. So having the a big gap in the middle, um, it doesn't, I mean, it's cool because you have views, you can see down and stuff, but I feel like that in that aspect, Paramus Park was not exactly the best. But in terms of uh, how to get up there, there was this uh, series. And again, I, this has been so long since I've seen this. Um, there was almost like a series of cliffs with waterfalls and plants. It was almost like this weird jungle kind of thing. And you would sort of, uh, from <coughs> the main level, you would... You would start walking up, and it was like it was sort of like fake stone kind of stuff. It was almost like going on an Indiana Jones adventure, and I think there were waterfalls. Um, and you would walk up these stairs, but you couldn't see exactly where you're going. And then you had like a switchback; you went up other stairs, and it was all around the uh, the, uh, the the food court to get up to the food court. I also thought that was so cool. Um, and I've never seen that in any other mall or in any other building. It was a very unique thing. And then at some point, they tore it all down. Why did they tear down the coolest thing? I don't know. At least they still have the turkey statue there. They have this little uh, Native American child riding a giant turkey. And that was their opening day for uh, for Paramus Park. And the statue can still be seen, at least last time I was there, which was... I, I believe I was... Yeah, no, I was definitely there last year, yeah, because... Uh, you know, my father passed away last year, and the facility that he was in at the end was actually I, w- I would actually I could actually like almost pass ro- I would have passed right by Paramus Park every time I was on my way home from there. So I did stop by Paramus Park. You know, they have a, uh, a Stu Leonard supermarket there, which uh, yeah, the guy I work with is from Connecticut, and he's like, you know, I said something. I asked Stu Leonard's wasn't that great. He's like, don't you dare say anything against Stu Leonard's because like Stu Leonard's, I guess. It's a huge thing in Connecticut, and only started coming to Jersey fairly recently. And his, historically speaking, I'm, I mean, I don't know. My experience at Sue Leonard's, I, I don't know if it's past its heyday, but it's sort of like, uh, you know, it's a supermarket and it's sort of like a with some Disney World kind of stuff in there. You know, like uh, <coughs> the robotic figurines singing and dancing, and all sorts of things going on there. But the places, it's like, you know, you have to go through in one way and. It's a whole thing. I, I kind of get it. It's kind of this quirky sort of down-home kind of supermarket thing. But I don't know. At, for the first time I experienced it, I was a bit underwhelmed. But, um, and, you know, Paramus Park definitely is a mall. I mean, I, so many malls are dying these days. And uh, Paramus Park seems to be still alive. But it's definitely of, of the malls in that area, which is like one of the most concentrated mall areas ever. Uh, Garden State Plaza is still doing fine. It seems to be doing great. Paramus Park, not so much. And uh, 
I mean, Bergen Mall has, or Bergen Town Center as they call it now, it's you know, kind of, um, you know, they have the uh, the Whole Foods there, and I'm not sure what the did they turn into outlets. I don't know what happened with that place, but uh, that place I don't think had a food court, <laughs> had a food court per se. I don't think so. Right? Not all malls had food courts. That's that's what I'm trying to say. Not all malls. I know when you see something like uh, Stranger Things and you see like the food court in the mall, sort of an iconic 80s mall. It's kind of weird. I'm not sure in other parts of the country, but in New Jersey here, um, you know, the my main malls growing up were Menlo and uh, Woodbridge, you know, Menlo Park Mall and Woodbridge Center Mall. Because even though I was about a half hour away, uh, there were no other malls nearby. The, the other mall that we would go to sometimes was Short Hills. But that's not nowhere near as fun as Menlo or uh, definitely Woodbridge was my favorite. Absolutely. Short Hills, it was the pompous mall, you know, and uh, it's still it's still pompous to this day. I'm very impressed. I admire its pomposity. Uh, but, yeah, so, um, yeah, so Woodbridge never had a food court. I don't think it, it even still doesn't have a food court. It's, it's bizarre, right? Never had a food court. I don't think they – I don't know. I actually didn't research this. I know this episode is called Food Court Logic. But, <coughs> but yeah, they don't, they don't have a food court. And uh, Menlo – well, I mean Menlo was a strange case because it started off – you know, the first shopping malls were they, – they weren't enclosed. It was sort of like open to the sky. And then, it, and then they started enclosing it. And uh, Menlo spe- specifically – the version of Menlo that I went to when I was growing up, in fact, I think some of my earliest memories are at Menlo. Um, yeah, the Bambergers that was there, the department store. There was a fountain in the mall right outside the Bambergers with those Lucite clear plastic rods kind of making it up. Uh, but yeah, some of my earliest memories my, was uh, going shopping with my mother at uh, Menlo Park Mall. And, uh, yeah, there was an arcade, actually, in that corridor that no longer exists because around 1990 or so, they decided to uh, tear down the entire mall and rebuild it. And uh, But they kept the Macy's or whatever. It became – the Bambergers became a Macy's. They kept that building standing. So uh, there are some remnants of the old mall that I used to know so much. But then they rebuilt it, and it and it was a great it was a great mall, because I, I I when I lived over in Island, back in the ninety three ninety four ninety five ish that kind of time period, um, yeah that was that you know I was close to both malls Woodbridge and Menlo and uh, used to go there a lot and to me Menlo is kind of I think in a way the most important mall to me because of the various stages of my life that it was important in which is from deep in early childhood uh, to, uh, would you say, young adulthood? I'm not sure. My 20s, I suppose. I, I was uh, would go there a lot. So when they rebuilt the mall, they did include a food court. And so it had an actual food court, which as food courts go was pretty good. It, to me, um, my love of shopping malls has to do with this quality that um, – I think has been partially defined as liminal, but I don't think the liminal the liminal identifier is more associated with sort of uh, dead malls and empty spaces, right? But to me, there always was 
equality uh, to malls, even when they were thriving, that had this particular strange quality. And, you know, like a lot of times I would talk about, like, in the old days in New York City, depressing seating areas. Like, you'd go to a deli, then you go up these stairs, and it's just like this weird, crappy seating area. It's so awesome. Kind of its own form of food court. But when I say depressing seating area, again, I'm sort of talking about this thing that somewhat is defined as liminal, but I think, you know, because I, I, I mistakenly, I, I joined a liminal liminal group on Facebook, and all the group was was people arguing about what was the definition of liminal and occasionally posting a few pictures. I posted one, and people were, like, all over it. Is this really minimal? Mi- liminal? Uh, I, I mean, this may not be liminal. Okay, goodbye. I, I, I left that group. A bunch of insane people. There's something there. There's an important concept there. But I guess no one knows how to define it. So all they were doing was arguing about that. But it's... I think it's related to liminality, which is... Again, I don't know exactly how to define that, but it's um, <coughs> it's a feeling that you get. Um, it's an aesthetic feeling, you know, like when you know when you're hungry and you eat delicious food. That's a feeling, right? Uh, when you know when there's all sorts of aesthetic feelings that you get, you know, and this feeling that is produced by. In many cases, I mean, one vector of it is, uh, you know, uh, commercial interior designs, right? There's a certain perception or quality to it that is uh, extremely pleasurable and fascinating and different than anything else. And yet it's very hard to define because it's not just liminality, which, what does that mean? The the edge of, the limit of? No, because like food courts especially have this quality to them where you could call it depressing or you could call it kind of, I don't know what you would call it, but there's something indescribably beautiful about it if you have those aesthetics. And if you look on those web pages where you have images of the the golden age of shopping malls, which would be 60s, 70s, 80s, maybe 90s, 60s was a bit early too because, uh, yeah, 70s, 80s, 90s, you want to say. Um, right? There's a there's a certain quality to those kinds of images. And I don't, I don't know what it is, but I know it affects me very strongly. So I do feel like uh, Menlo is a good food court. I mean, I think it had some kind of skylights or, right, in the ceiling, some natural light came in. And uh, they had some interesting sculptures there at one point, like giant, like, children's blocks kind of stacked up, those uh, sculptures like that. And there was this one place, I I really want to find the name of it. It was like a Southwest Grill. I think the the logo was kind of a 90s, two uh, coyotes howling at the moon. And they had these little uh, hash browns I used to get. But they were sort of like flat disks of hash browns. I used to like that. But, uh, yeah, as as far as um, the quality of the feeling, uh, it was it was not the best, not necessarily the best food court feeling, right? I feel like uh, Willowbrook, which is closer to me here now in northern New Jersey, and was 
the mall of my uh, radio partner, Mad Mike, when he was growing up. Uh, he was from Caldwell, New Jersey. And uh, that food court to me has, you know, I was just there actually fairly recently within the past month or two. I, I stopped by there. Um, that has a good food court vibe. There's something, it's, and again, I use the word depressing. It's sort of, that one is depressing, um, but it, it does have that sort of transcendent uh, food court quality, uh, which, again, is impossible to describe. Um, but that's a good one. In fact, I remember going there because I never went there growing up. When I was in college with Mad Mike, I think around 86 maybe we went up there. And uh, I don't think they had the food. I think they were just bu- in the process of building the food court. It was like coming soon, the food court, right? And that's just so weird that, like, uh, I think the impression people are having is that every mall had a food court, but it definitely did not. Um, a good food court now, I do think, uh, uh, Garce Plaza, it's pretty good. It just, uh, it's sort of... It's on a lower level, looking up at another level, and it's sort of divided in two by a walkway, uh, you know, main thoroughfare of the mall. You know, they added that wing with the movie theater and stuff. You may know, or you may not. Um, that one, yeah, it's it's definitely not bad, and it has those rambling seating areas that give you those particular feelings. Of course, you know, for me now... You know, back in the 80s, up until a certain point, I I, I would eat anything. And then uh, in 87, I did turn vegetarian, which when you get to the food court, it does extremely limit your options at a food court, what to eat. You could always find something. But being vegan since 2018 now, food courts are uh, often, in many cases, what was a food court? In many cases, there's nothing. Like, I think, I think uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Bridgewater Commons, which is the mall that opened up by where I lived growing up, but it opened up around 1990. So by that point, I was already like out of college. So it wasn't like I would have, you know, it would have been better to have it there beforehand. But that mall just never really, <coughs> there's something wrong with that mall in terms of its energy, the feng shui, whatever you want to say. There's, it's, that mall has never quite worked, in my opinion. And the food court also is a bit uninspired, in my opinion. But there is a cool area when you look outside at the parking lot, which is kind of good. Anyway, I, the last couple times I went there, um, I realized there's not, not a single thing I could eat. There's not, zero vegan options. You know, it, it happens. You know, it happens. Um, and what was the one I went to recently? Oh, American Dream, of course, the... Uh, they have multiple food courts there, but the food court by the uh, by the Ferris wheel, I think it was the first one that opened, but now there's a few other food courts that are opening. It's a huge place. It's an amazing place. It's too big to fail. Um, there was nothing, but then they opened a, remember I went to this falafel place there, and I'm like, what do you, because their menu was very confusing. I'm like, what do you have that's uh, vegan? Everything's vegan. All right. And then it's like, what about this sauce? Oh, that sauce not vegan. What about this sauce? Oh, that's not vegan. <laughs> These people were annoying me because everything, they said everything was vegan, but then it, when I started asking, oh, that's not vegan. Remember that whole thing? 
But that was maybe the only place I could get something. It's, you know, it, I know the, you know if I decide to be vegan, the, the world doesn't owe me. They, they, they shouldn't be, you know, it doesn't mean everyone has to serve vegan food. But I don't know. Toss a few things out there. You're a business, for God's sakes. Does it really hurt you that much to have one vegan option? So those poor vegans that come to the food court can have one thing to eat? Please. And, of course, in New York City, and I'm sure in other parts of the world, uh, food courts have been sort of rebranded. And this is this is for a food court that's not in a mall. It's just sort of like in a building, in a city. They're called food halls now, not food courts. And there's a bunch of food halls now in um, Midtown Manhattan. The Hue is an especially interesting one. Because it's the atrium of this, the City Corp Center or the City Group Center, and a place that I went to so much because there was a Barnes and Noble there, and there was that atrium which almost was like a food court because there were a few places you could get food. And then you sit in the uh, the seating in the atrium, but it was not a mall. It was it was an office building. It is an office building, but somehow they revamped the whole thing to be a true food hall and uh, really beautifully done. It's called the Hue, you know H U G H. That's a cool place. And and then the food halls usually will have a vegan place or a vegan option place. Because it's, you know, maybe partially to justify the cost because I can swear I remember you used to get lunch, you know, for like under $10 and it got up to 12 13 14 15 Now you're lucky if you, if you can get out without spending 30 bucks on lunch for one person. That's what I'm trying to say. It's ridiculous. Yeah, like at, at the Hue, I, there's a place that has vegan ramen. So the ramen's like twenty, and the and you get like a beer. That's ten. So you're already at thirty at that point. It's like ridiculous. The hell, man! Everything's so expensive. But uh, yeah, the uh, the picture is of uh, actually a show I did over the last summer, summer of 2023. Um, do I have the notes here? Yeah, yeah. The actual uh, tray of food. I took a picture of it and. Uh, Hold on. What was it? <coughs> Sorry, I have this lingering cough. I know it's so annoying. Uh, the Overnight Escape 2029 Dram Dial-Up from uh, July 10th, 2023. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it's when I went to Rockaway. I think it's called the Rockaway Town Square Mall. And uh, they have a food court there that I do remember from the past because uh, I, I know we used to go to Rockaway when I was in college in, like, the late 80s. I think the food court was there, actually. And, uh, yeah, so I, when I went there, I uh, I really wanted my favorite mall food ever, which is sushi and French fries. That is my ultimate, you know, the veggie sushi. Um and uh, so, you know, I'm a pretty pretty strict in terms of my vegan diet. And uh, so I kind of, in order to get sushi and french fries, I had to sort of wing it a little bit because, uh, you know, I'm sure at the sushi place they're using the same knife to cut the fish as they're cutting the, the veggie sushi. I'll, 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 I'll accept it. And then, you know, and Nathan's. God only knows what else they're frying in that oil that they fried the uh, fries in, and I, that's usually a no-no for me. But to get that that uh, beautiful 
beautiful lunch. I, I, I accepted it. I know it sounds like I'm being super strict with this stuff, but. And I don't know. I don't know how my strictness, you know, developed to that extent, but, you know. That's the, that, that's the ideal. You don't want cross-contamination cross if possible. Other vegans, I think, don't care about cross-contamination because of the way that they're sort of understanding the whole concept. It's a personal choice whether or not to accept cross-contamination. <coughs> but if there's, if there's some, imagine there's something you really, really, really would never want to eat, whatever that may be, and... Uh, that substance, which you find disgusting, is like smeared all over the edges of your food. You probably wouldn't want to eat that food, right? That's just sort of, yeah, that's sort of where it comes from. Anyway, yeah, so it was, uh, yeah, Nathan's fries and, uh, yeah, pretty good little uh, sushi dish, which took, as I recall, like for, they took them like 25 minutes to make my sushi as, as something. I don't know. It's pretty wild. But, uh, yeah, food court logic. What is food court logic? Um, well, like, you know, it, there's no instructions when you go to the food court at the mall, right? Like, there, there, people somehow, and, and, of course, if it was required, you could imagine them putting up signs that say, welcome to the food court. How does it work? Uh, well, generally speaking, find a food place that looks good to you go up to the counter and tell them what you want and then they'll give you a tray with the food you pay them and the drinks and now you may see a lot of uh tables and chairs at this point right because you have the tray you're not really the tray is like not yours you're using it temporarily so you, you can't just like take the tray home you sit at one of these tables and you eat your food and then when you're done to be nice, why don't you uh, throw out the trash in the garbage cans and stack up those trays by the garbage cans, right? Like, if you're expecting it to be like a regular restaurant where you sit down and someone comes to serve you, yeah, that's not going to happen. This is a food court. That generally doesn't happen in a food court. The question is, like, everyone seems to understand that. Like, how is it that it does seem that people are getting much like like dumber and dumber as the decades go on, but it still seems everyone knows how to use a food court. Like, how do they know? I I think it's because, generally speaking, if you're, you know, if you're not living under a rock, I mean, you're going to go to the mall from a young age, and you just sort of like you see what's going on, right? Like, I'm sure as a kid, you go to some restaurants and you sit down. And the and, and and the wait the waiter or wait, waitress or what's what's the politically correct term for that now the server comes <coughs> comes over and uh, you know asks you what you want and you tell them and then they write it down on a little pad and then a while later they bring you the food right you don't have to do anything but tell them what you want but in the food court it's not like that you got to get your own food there's no wait staff there's no servers. And, uh, yeah, you uh, choose what you want. You can go to any of those places around the edge. Anything that you want. What do you feel like having? And, uh, yeah. And the tables and chairs are meant for the people who bought some uh, stuff. And you're, not supposed to, you're really not supposed to sit there, like, all day long. I mean, there's really no set time limit. But 
the general concept is the chairs and the tables are provided for, you know, you to eat your food. And, uh, you know, so if you're there for like 20 minutes, great. I mean, if you're there for like five hours, it starts to seem a little weird. But again, these are not written down, even though I know when you go into a mall in general, they have the rules of the mall, which is this like 800 step, uh, you know, legal document that's sort of etched in the wall. You know, I don't know if they mentioned food court stuff, you know, but uh, yeah, I guess you just sort of get to know, you get to know, you know, what the, how to use a food court. (laughs) You know, it's not really, it's kind of like not rocket science, but again, it's, 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 how do people know? I mean, and that may, people may not know people that are not everyone in the world lives near malls or goes to malls, especially now that most malls are, are, are uh, dying and disappearing. Maybe a lot of you listening in the future where there are no malls, you're like, you know, maybe that's why you're listening to this show to learn more about malls. Uh, yeah, this guy, Frank, back in the 21st century, he talked a lot about malls and he recorded a lot of shows. So if you use your AI assistant, you can hear Frank t- rambling on about malls for like, you know, days on end, you know, like literally think that's true. I think there probably are. Days, over 48 hours of me rambling about malls. If I had the AI, I can ask, how many hours did I did I talk about malls on the show? And it would say, yes, master, you have talked about malls for 94 hours and 32 minutes and 16 seconds. Gee, thanks. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. Yeah, let's take a look at this uh, show art. I, I do like how it came out. It, it was a... Uh, bit of a process coming up with the show art because uh like last night i'm like let me let me find some show art directions and i was looking at recent photos i've taken older photos just randomly going through stuff um trying all different directions and nothing was really clicking but i did download a few images and this was one of the contenders but there were a lot of other ones i was playing around with so by the time i went to bed last night i had nothing conclusive about the show art uh yeah because i try to you know find directions and get inspired and i try to make i try to leave it it's always been sort of a similar process where i'm sort of sort of you know feeling for you know a good direction and hopefully something that has some symbolic content in it symbolizing some of the themes or concepts of what's going on around me um but uh yeah so I, I saw the picture i took back in july um of my tray of food and i played around with it and i'm like yeah this just doesn't look good finally i decided to uh to silo out the tray and put it on a black background and that looked much better i was thinking of doing like stars in the background i'm like yeah no that's not necessary um so yeah, what do we see on the tray there? There's uh Of course on the right is the uh, the sushi platter which is, you know, veggie maki essentially. So it is uh avocado maki and uh some actual avocado sushi and some inari and some uh asparagus sushi and a big amount of that ginger and the wasabi which 
I was reading that like most wasabi you get is not even real real wasabi. So I'm wondering, like, like, did I ever have real wasabi? Or was it all the fake horseradish stuff? I don't know. Anyway, and then we have the Nathan's French fries and those little shallow uh, plastic uh, cups of where you can put up. Uh, I have some ketchup and some mu- <coughs> and some mustard there. And then down you see uh, the solo, the solo cup uh, for soy sauce, right? With, has this one has a lid. And then towards the left, or there's a couple. Di- there's two different receipts on this uh, tray. Then there's a wad of uh, of napkins. A lot of times, you know, you can never like a lot of times you run out of napkins because this stuff gets very messy. So I had a big wad of ma- big wad of <coughs> napkins there, and then of course the Poland spring water. You know, so that that's usually what I like to drink. I just water with the uh, sushi and French fries, and that's and it's on a green tray. So the the tray is is there like a, a Rockaway logo on there or something? I don't know. What happened? I totally lost it. Hmm. Anyway, um, so then the font, right? I I tried. Uh, I actually tried. Uh, <coughs> I was. <coughs> I was uh, definitely thinking of doing a letra set font because I wanted to do a, find a font that could have been used in graphics in an actual food court like back in the 70s or 80s. So I tried Cabaret, and that just did not work. So um, I looked at a site, this uh, Daylight Fonts from Japan, that has a lot of letra set uh, fonts listed. I saw one called Cut-In, C-U-T hyphen I-N, uh, sort of a rounded uh, sans serif that, felt like it could be in the right direction so I found uh, most of these fonts you can find it online for free pretty easy Um, but yeah this was the right font so tried a bunch of different uh, fonts and a bunch of different colors and I came up, I you know, I tried to, I think this green is from, originally from, like, the asparagus or maybe the uh, Poland Spring logo. But when I got that shade of green, I'm like, that's good, but let me give it a little bit of a highlight on the top. Give it a little bit of a neon feel, because it's kind of a neon-ish font. And then uh, that really looked great, in my opinion. And then above it, I uh, typeset the Overnightscape, letter spaced out, a smaller type size again tried a ton of different colors and I I came upon this sort of purplish magenta color and it has a real 80s feel to it and pretty much a food court feel to it too I think and and, uh, yeah that's the story of the show art but uh, what is but food court logic goes further than just sort of the logic of a food court like what do you do in a food court I don't know sit down eat something what do you want have some coffee. I don't know. But it was actually um, something I had written a long, long, long time ago. Back around the year 2000 or 2001, we had this band called Fuzzy Doppner, right? And I would write a lot of lyrics for the band. And like sometimes, like these lyrics would take months to write. Like I, I would just continually work on them. Um, 
So, as you might imagine, I, I had a... Uh, hold on a second here. What's going on? Sorry. Um, so, yeah, I, I had notes files. Um, I, don't, I forget if it was on the computer or what, but, yeah. So I would just take notes for ideas for lyrics and stuff. And uh, there were three sets of lyrics that I had completely finished with by the time the band broke up, but no songs were made of them. But then I also was left with a bunch of notes and scraps and fragments that were kind of interesting that uh, would have eventually made their way into songs had the band continued on. And uh, this phrase, food court logic, was in there, and I, I don't remember if there was any further meaning to it, food court logic, but it just sounds good. It's, you know, it sounds like a good... Uh, it's a good phrase, food court logic. Um, and, you know, it's food court logic and the flimsy anchor, I think, was the, was the, was the lyric. Um, so eventually, I believe it was 2021, I, uh, if I can find it here, I had it and then I lost it. All right. Yes. In, uh, in May of 2021, several years ago now, as it's 2024 now, yes. Um, I decided to go back and uh, use all of the stuff in that notes file to create one final set of lyrics, and I called it Fortha Losta, because it's the fourth lost song, for, but I call it Fortha Losta. And this is where the, the, the phrase food court logic is in here. So let me just read this to you. This, this could be a song someday. Maybe if there's ever a Fuzzy Dawkner cover band, they can start creating these songs as well. <coughs> Ahem. Let me just try to get ready to read these lyrics here. Little Powder Blue Audi TT, the first internet rock band in me. Coffee is flavored with blueberry cream. England swings and tobacco is king. Summer in the astral plane of dollar signs and peaceful knives. Gonna punch a hole in a wall, aficionado. Cinder black wall painted black and avocado. We spend our days in losing cool over what we're missing. Lashing out at easy targets. Licking wounds is our delight. Food court logic and the flimsy anchor. Welcome to our stupid game. If you knew how close you were to disaster, Mr. Gleaming the Cube wouldn't be your master. KJ and the Circus Gray, are we sleeping? A laughing in arcade upon the cliffsides, the Faradina Salters keep it under their hats. In Shack Bluff, a night market is where it's at. In night air travel via ancient times, the harshness of this home. A jagged ride, a skylight of amperage, on which hazel correspondence day. The lamp dainties sip off residual light from lamp shades in the pitch of night, as jumbo jets in silhouette might, if stardust flowed like anthracite. Come to me, little perfect free, a wren fair she, be zorch, daddy o, to southbound brook or dock watch hollow. Go bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. Go forth a losta. <laughs> the hell is up with that song, man? That's a wild song, right? 
<coughs> mentions the food court logic. Could that ever be a song? Maybe in some some reality it'll be a song sometime. Fourth Alosta. Yeah, the whole food the whole food court system. What do you want? Ah, uh, good morning. Vegas, please. Yeah, it's the next day now. Yeah, yesterday I had a hard time getting started recording. I don't know, so I, I just uh, was able to do that one segment towards the evening time. Hi, Vegas. This is Vegas the Cat. Um, yeah, so uh, was it two days ago on Wednesday? The cleaning crew came, and the cats get very, very upset when the, the you know the cleaners are here. <coughs> and as we found last time, Vegas has secretly been. Um, finding a way into into the walls here in the basement, which seems incredibly dangerous. Um, he uh, found two ways of getting in: an opening by the gas meter, which I had ostensibly covered up with like a bag and a placemat, but he just sort of was able to sail right in, jumping over them. <coughs> and uh, <laughs> also in the boiler room, there's a way to get in. And uh, so, as you may recall, I was finally able to get him out of the walls and I, I covered up the opening with a cardboard and a tape and um, the tape started coming off a while back so I just I reinforced it with gorilla tape like a black duct tape so I thought it was really well done but Vegas is, was so persistent he, there's a there's a there's like a, a ledge by the window up there and he was reaching over and scratching it he must have been it's almost like a, a prisoner in a cell um, you know, scratching away with a spoon, trying to dig their way out. He somehow was able to <coughs> um, tear open a side, a corner of, of the cardboard with the Gorilla Tape. Like, I can't believe how he did it. So yesterday morning, when I'm, I'm you know, in the morning time feeding feeding the cats, um, he wasn't there. And I'm like, uh-oh, don't tell me. So I came down, I saw that he had opened it up. So I heard him walking around in, in the ceiling in the walls and uh, so there's a little other opening I can open up for him to get out and I was just sitting here just waiting I don't know how how long it would take he finally came out and I uh, picked him up took him upstairs and then I reinforced with uh, much more gorilla tape in a much much better way of course I'm ruining the wall at the same time and and then all day he's just been yesterday he was like single-minded and just wanting to get back in, into the wall. It's like his hiding place when, for when the cleaners come. And it's just like, I, it's just too dangerous. There's no act. We have no access, obviously, inside the walls. It's inc- It could be incredibly dangerous. I have no idea what's going on in there. That's why I don't let him in the attic, because the attic has all of these spaces that are, uh, all these rusty nails sticking out and, and uh, areas filled with insulation, all sorts of stuff. No, kitty, no. No. So now he's obsessed. He's obsessed with getting back in. I mean, I, I was amazed at, that, at how he uh, figured out how to, how to open it up. Kitty, please. You don't need to go in the walls, okay? So, kitty, come on. Relax. Kitty, come on. Anyway. I think I have it all sealed up now. 
And I know over time he'll he'll get better. He'll recover from from his desire to go inside the walls. In other news, uh, you may remember I talked about this this moonlander, the peregrine, astrobotic peregrine moonlander, uh, which uh, it, they launched it, but then there was some problem, and now it has burned up in the Earth's atmosphere. Supposedly, American company's moonlander disintegrates in Earth's atmosphere. The astrobotic peregrine spacecraft launched last week for a lunar land landing but a propulsion malfunction left it unable to complete its mission. You know, and, and as I mentioned, it's it's not any kind of proof of the moon landing hoax or what have you, but if this is something that, if, if, if sending a lander to the moon is something that they did over 50 years ago, uh, successfully, most of the time, other than Apollo 13, obviously, but... Um, the fact that it, it's it, it's this endless uh, uh, everything's exploding, everything's crashing. Like, did you really go in the first place? You know what I mean. <laughs> and that's uh, so Gene Roddenberry and Magel Barrett Roddenberry and I, Arthur C. Clarke. Their remains, their earthly rema- remains, were on the spaceship, and now they've been uh, cremated a second time in the Earth's atmosphere. So, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, so, uh, you know, my favorite band at the moment is Fish, P-H-I-S-H, and uh, I've been c- becoming a bigger fan recently. Uh, I was a mild fan since the 90s, and uh, finally went to see a show in 2018, and now, uh, for example, over the summer, last summer I went, they did a seven-night run at Madison Square Garden in Manhattan. I went to all seven nights, and it was fantastic. I stream all the shows from home, every single one, so I have seen all their tours. They're not like other bands. Like a guy I work with went to see Tool at Madison Square Garden last weekend, and, um, you know, I'm not against Tool, and I remember we used to listen to their first one or two albums at work, the same place where I found out about Fish, with those guys I work with back in the 90s. But, you know, you look at the set list of Tool, and it's like, just like every other band, they play mostly the same songs every night, and then they have a few slots where they can throw in something different. I know almost every band does that. They basically, so you wouldn't really want to go see seven shows in a row of of any other band, uh, because they're going to play the same songs every night. Fish does not do that. Seven nights, there was not a single repeat. I think they played 180 different songs, and something like that. They just have an absolute... They're a different kind of band. They're on another level. And, of course, the jam bands do that. The Grateful Dead did that, and all the Grateful Dead, you know, offshoot bands, Dead & Company, etc. By the way, you know... (laughs) Now, Dead & Company is going to play The Sphere out in Vegas in May after Fish does that in April. But anyway, let's let's just say um, this is getting now to be kind of expensive and life-consuming trying to do all the fish stuff. So next month is Fish Ghost in Mexico. They're in the Quintana Roo and uh, the Moon Palace Resort. I have never gone to that. That's like a three-night, uh, you know, all-inclusive package you buy to go to Mexico and see them. And uh, 
Someday I'd like to do that, but that just seems too... It just off, every, All this stuff is awfully expensive. And you try to say, like, if I had this much thousands of dollars, could I take a trip to, like, Japan or something instead of going to see fish? You have to really consider as a, as a travel thing. <clears throat> so, of course, now fish beyond Mexico. And, of course, the sphere, which I've talked about out, out in Las Vegas. They're playing the sphere in April, and I tried to get tickets... So two tickets for all four nights were I able to get the tickets when they went on sale or during the lottery would have been $1,000. Two, a pair of tickets for all four nights. Uh, I did not, most people did not get their tickets because there's such a massive demand. Uh, there's, there's never been anything like this fear and fish doing this fear is going to be totally unique. As soon as uh, it went to the secondary market, that, that $1,000 became $7,000. It's been going down 6000 and now 5500 But come on, those prices are insane. Completely insane. Because it's not only that, then you have to fly out to Vegas and get a hotel in Vegas. So, no, it's like too much money. Like that amount of money, you can go, like I said, go to Japan, for God's sakes. So, I'm still hoping the prices come down for for the the tickets and i don't know but now also is this festival in august in dover delaware called mondegreen and listen delaware is not that far away it's like what a three-hour drive from here or something um and and i've never been to one of their festivals they've had a bunch of festivals which is like their own little mini woodstock but all the only band that plays is Fish. And uh, I've heard of these festivals. The last one was called Magnaball. It was in 2015. It's 2024 now. I throw that in because I know people... Like, I, I know there's this potentially way of listening to the archive, which is, like, kind of random. So I may have just jumped right in there. And Yeah, it's 2024 now. But 2015, was a, that's a long time ago. They did have... They did plan a festival called Curveball in upstate New York in 2018, I believe. But it was canceled at the last minute due to massive flooding, which resulted in an absence of any any, uh, drinking water. The whole water system was shot because of the floods. That apparently, people were already like on their way there when they canceled it, and it was horrible, a horrible situation. I'm starting to get a sense now, if you're one of these more dedicated fans, you basically spend all your time, all your money on fish, you know. So this one now, there's you, there's camping. Uh, you you can you, you can <coughs> you can go and camp. I have no idea how to do camping. Um, and then there's also these travel packages, which aren't too too bad compared to the the sphere stuff, where you get a hotel somewhere in Delaware. The close ones were all sold out, but like that, you know, one up in. Uh, Middletown, Delaware, right next to a, a mall in like some, you know, extended stay America kind of Marriott hotel or something. It was only, quote unquote, only $1,200 per person. But that's four nights at the hotel and four four, four passes each to the, uh, the show. And they have a shuttle bus that will take you over there. The shuttle bus takes you over to the, uh, it's, it's a raceway. It's, it's, it's like a NASCAR track that becomes a, uh, a concert venue. And there's a casino right next door, too. So those were the most expensive tickets. You stay at this luxury resort 
then you just stroll on over to the show every night. But I think while well, my wife Denise is was was open to perhaps going to see the Sphere, for her the the discomfort and I totally agree of of a festival where you you know, you 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 can't sit. It's just sort of you have to stand the whole time in this field with billions of other people, rain or shine. <laughs> kind of a kind of a tough sell. So at this point, I don't even know what I'm going to do with this fish stuff because I can just I'm, I'm assuming they'll be streaming all these things from home, which itself is expensive, but not in the same thousands and thousands of dollars expensive range. But anyway, so I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know. Because the tickets just went on sale for Mondegreen. Mondegreen, M-O-N-D-E-G-R-E-E-N, is a... Uh, what is going on? Oh, that was my coffee. Okay. <laughs> I was like, what the hell? This is beeping. Coffee's done. Yeah, I got that Hawaiian, like... Uh, I just I just wanted to get different coffee. Like I'm I'm in, I'm sort of annoyed getting the same thing all the time. So I found this Maui coffee, but of course it's only ten percent Hawaiian coffee, and the rest is ninety percent mystery coffee. Great. <laughs> I guess because it's a bag of coffee that costs like I don't know fifteen dollars. If it was all Hawaiian, what would it cost like ninety dollars? I don't know. See, so they just throw ten percent in there and, and and say it's Hawaiian. You you might get a bare I mean ten percent, ninety percent of it, God only knows what kind of coffee it is. But for novelty's sake, that's why I got it. I'm sure and it's fine, it's fine coffee. What do you want? Anyway, Mondegreen is a is an actual word which means misheard lyrics in a song, right? Like Jimi Hendrix, excuse me while I kiss this guy. No, it's excuse me while I kiss the sky, you know. So that's a Mondegreen. I did not know of that word's existence. I don't know if anyone knew of that word's existence, but apparently it's out there. Mondegreen. And it's a great name for a festival, so, yeah. Great, great name. Mondegreen. But I would definitely go. I do. I would do one of the hotel packages, but they don't, you have to have two people for the hotel packages. You can't just do one person. And I know I could go on Reddit and try to find some... No. No, I don't want to. I don't want to feel like this is consuming my whole life. Listen, I want to go, I want to go on a real trip to somewhere real. I don't know, like Ohio or Japan or something. You know what I'm saying? I want to go on a real trip. And I, 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 I don't know that I want to spend all my money seeing fish. But that doesn't sound like a bad idea either. <laughs> and, and here's a, a quick one. Um, yeah, yesterday uh, you know, we, ordered, we ordered out for some food and the Uber driver came. He's like, hey, yeah. He, you know, he rang the doorbell. Hey, yeah, here. Uh, yeah, I just need a code. I guess they've been having issues with um, deliveries made to people. I'm just assuming all this. Deliveries made to the wrong person. Either you got the wrong house, and I and I can imagine it. It can get confusing out there. Imagine you deliver food to the wrong house, and the people are like, "Ah, oh, free food? I'll take it." <laughs> yeah, <You know>, like. <coughs> so apparently, they inst- instituted this this uh, this a pin number. You have a four digit number that you have to give them for them to release the food to you. To, to to sort of confirm you are the person that ordered the food. So I gave him the number he, and he typed it in. And he's like, yep, that's the ticket. Have a good day. <laughs> <coughs> that's so great. That's the ticket. <laughs> I never heard anyone say that for such a long time. Yeah, that's the ticket. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's almost like a 1930s kind of phrase, right? Yeah, yeah that's the ticket. 
what was that? What was that phrase they used? Remember that? I played that clip from that uh, Clara Bow movie, um, where they're circus performers, and she she asked the guy if if he can help her practice like the trapeze. He's like, write your own ticket. <laughs> so maybe that was a time traveler that delivered it. He's like stuck. He's from the 1930s. He's stuck in the 2020s, and he's become an Uber driver. He's learned to use the technology. Yeah, that's the ticket. <laughs> of course, the the, the I remember uh, was it uh, what was his name? Um, yeah, it was. Uh, remember on Saturday night, Saturday night, Saturday Night Live, John Lovitz played a character named Tommy Flanagan, the liar, and he's like, he kept lying. He's like, yeah, that's the ticket. I think I found a random clip here. Let's see. It's a random clip with uh, the the liar character. Oh, come on. These ads for these fake games, it's getting annoying. Well, White House spokesman Larry Speaks resigned yeah, this man. week. Insiders speculate that first in line then, to replace yeah. him is none other than the president of Pathological Liars Anonymous, Tommy Flanagan. Mr. Flanagan is here with us tonight. Can comment, Tommy? Dennis Miller. Well, uh, but I'm not really first in line. No, I, uh, I already have the job. Yeah. In fact, I've had it for months. Yeah, sure I have. Of course, so with Larry there, I, I stayed behind the scenes, yeah. But speaking of Speaks, I was speaking to him yesterday. Speaks, I spoke. You're fired. Out, get out. Sure, he says he quit. But what do you expect him to say? He's a liar. <laughs> now, about this Iranian deal. Well, it wasn't really a deal, see? It was a... It, it was a present. Yeah. The Ayatollah's... Bicentennial. Yeah, that's a ticket... Two That's the ticket. Years old. <laughs> Almost twice as old as the president. Yes. By the way, it wasn't weapons he sent to Iran. No, it was. Uh, it was. Uh, well, all right, it was weapons. But, but he didn't send. Uh, so you're talking about Iran Contra, the Reagan controversy. <laughs> no, he sent contraceptives to the Congo. Yeah. That's the, the ticket. Like no and then at the end, he's like, My yeah, wife, Morgan Fairchild. That's yeah, the ticket. Was their fault. Except for uh, me, of course. Yeah. All right, enough of that. <laughs> that gets old real quick. That's the ticket. Hey, it's a bit later now, 11.30 a.m. It is snowing again. They're saying about an inch. It hasn't started to stick yet, but we'll see. More snow. We've had more snow already than we had in the last couple of years. That's what they predicted in the Farmer's Almanacs et al. Yeah. Anyway, I just wanted to follow up a little bit on what I talked about last episode because I feel like uh, this idea of this Onsug Radio broadcast, I was, I was a bit lost and a bit, I don't know if I was explaining it correctly, but um, I think I have a better handle on it now. So basically, you know, here in Onsog Radio, it's uh, broadcasting from inside the book. So the book is the central container because unlike other projects, we're very focused on this project continuing on into the future. So it needs a simple container being that it will have no other support mechanism. So it's the book is the container, right? Wherever there's a copy of the book in the real world or in the virtual world, anyone that encounters that can now get into Onsog Radio. And the idea is that it's the title of the book. It's Onsug Radio, Broadcasting from Inside This Book. So the idea is, well, what is this broadcast? When someone gets the book, 
can they start hearing the broadcast? So the idea is that there will be this top-level broadcast that is uh, specifically meant to be sort of a meta-level, talking about Onsug Radio, playing clips, talking about all the different uh, stories and ideas and hosts and interconnections between everything. And this broadcast will consist of audio segments that are each 20-something minutes long, right? That was the idea. And I just wanted to make sure, last time I kind of was all over the place with the idea, but it's just very simple. This is what someone will hear when they open the book. And the idea is it can be automated in the future. In fact, what I've done is is, uh, semi-automated in terms of a computer voice uh, speaking the titles of random tracks, but I want to have actual hosts doing these as well for the meta-level broadcast, right? So I think this is very important. The idea is that here in Onsug Radio, there's this enormous archive of content, and there needs to be some kind of guide for it, and it would only make sense that it would be in an audio form since this is a radio-audio type of project. So I, that's what I'm focusing on. So I want to make it clear that this idea of this, there are these uh, segments or patches that are 20-something minutes long each that can be played in any order as part of the meta-broadcast, but it's, very sp- it's, it's completely focused on being the meta-broadcast for Onsug Radio. That is, each segment is going to be referring to and talking about uh, your, you know, what is available in this massive archive, right? And there's just so much. I mean, there's so much going on in the archive, so many different hosts, so many different shows, and so many different interconnections between things, right? Uh, so many different ways. I mean, I think that, uh, right, if we were to take a particular so- topic, right, that um, something like, say, the Terminator movies just comes to mind, um, the amount of times it's been talked about by the different hosts across the all 14,000-plus hours, right, eventually that's going to be something that a more automated system, right, I mean, it, you could say you, you need AI, but it could be bef- not, it could be regular AI, not AGI. That could sort of... Uh, transcribe everything and find when we talk about it. But can you imagine sort of, I want to hear what everyone had to say about the Terminator and then you'd sort of hear all the different opinions about all the different Terminator movies. I think, I think, and that is just one of tens of thousands of different topics that you could sort of, you know, use the archive to kind of hear and it would be this sort of unlimited kind of, um, you know, um, ways of surfing through the archive, uh, hearing so many different things. Um, so yeah, so that's so. Th- so this the the broadcast specifically is just meant to be the top level thing, and uh, still in an experimental phase. But I wanted to make that clear because I, I I myself was a little confused about it, but I think I hope it makes sense. So you might you might want to do a segment w- once we get the format established, uh, talking about maybe a particular host or a particular. Um, time period, you know, I did that one thing called the Week of Doom, if you remember that. I, I, I played all the shows that were during that week of December 21st, 2012, when the world was supposed to end, right? And there was another time when the world was supposed to end. It was like uh, Christmas Eve. I think it was Christmas Eve, and we went to, I think, at the Macy's at Willowbrook Mall in, Will- in Wayne, New Jersey, and, uh, right, the world was supposed to end, and I was recording inside the Macy's. A whole, there's all sorts of interesting stuff. So end of the world stuff could be another one of these, uh, <coughs> one of these, uh, you know, kind of topics. Right now, it would be kind of hard to do it, but as you can see, the potential for this stuff. So I think talking about, in a meta sense, of all the stuff that's out there, I think <coughs> is exactly 
what we're looking for. So I have no per- exact time frame in terms of when we're going to be sort of implementing this this top-level broadcast idea and how much of it will be manual, how much of it will be automated. But I just want to say that's what this whole thing was about, the 20-something-minute segments. Um, as I mentioned last time, this idea has over the years, it's been with me for so long, and right, I think at times it sort of felt like it was uh, trying to re- trying to create something that would be more of a general thing for all people, but I don't think ultimately that's a good idea. So I think it being just this laser-focused thing is the right way to go. Uh-oh, the snow's getting heavier out there. The hell? I just want to talk a little bit more about the font I use on today's episode art. Uh, cut in, and uh, there's a page for it on Fonts in Use, which is a great reference website uh, for fonts that collects information and then example usages of the font uh, out in the wild, you know, record covers and magazines, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This what it says about cut in. <clears throat> Created by Australian designer Maurice Schlesinger, graphic concept, in the late 60s or early 70s, Cut-In won a competition arranged by Letraset and was consequently published in two weights, medium and bold, in or before 1973, modern publicity, whatever that means. Simple Mint by Claude Pelletier, 2006, or Simple Mont, and Cut-In Character 2006 are unauthorized and incomplete digitizations of the medium weight. So I found s- s- Simplement or Simplement, Simplement to use in the show art. Fontalicious's Alba 2001 is a loose interpretation. In 2011, Schlesinger published his own digital reinterpretation with Font Factory named Bauhaus Rounded. It comes in two weights, light and medium. As of 2019, it appears to be no longer available. Here's a quote from Font Factory. While the standard Bauhaus rounded includes all the Bauhaus characteristics, such as the curved capital E, the rounded M and N, and circular O's, and the subtle stencil gaps in many of the letters, the Nova version has allowed Maurice to include some of his more fanciful characters, such as the lazy S, fully rounded C and G, and some clever ligatures, such as an SY for Sydney and an overlapping OA. That looks great in Koala. There is also a Bauhaus Rounded Pro, which combines the standard and Nova versions. So, and they show a bunch of, uh, look, Elvis's Christmas album. There you go. That's, that's in that same font. Yeah, there's a lot of examples of this font. It's a good one. I, I, I know it's one of those fonts that, you know, I, I used, to, and I still do, peruse Letraset catalogs from time to time and it's one of the ones that doesn't stand out as much as others, but it's it's a really good one and very, very unique. Font Factory. So this place is what? Is out of business now? Things come and go so quickly on the Internet. Thank goodness there are people that sort of preserve these things and make them available. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this is, this, this is working. Font Factory. Font Factory. Bauhaus rounded font. This guy I, in '73, he made this font. Then he came back and made it again. Mm-hmm. No, no. Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I, I think the uh, the name of it is kind because of, Bauhaus is a, a much more famous font. Mm-hmm. No, no. Sorry, I'm, I'm I'm trying to find it here. I, I don't think so. Yeah, it looks like some people in 2018 were looking for that font. And it just they just went back to the same page I was on. It, it doesn't seem like there's anything left of that Font Factory website or anything. It seems to be all gone. Yeah. Oh, well. In other news, uh, Eve from Florida, who has been on several exit ramps now, is a longtime listener to this show, uh, posted on Facebook, uh, I don't know if it's a meme or just an image, uh, saying... Kind of a shocking statistic that when MTV l- launched, right, back in 1981, that event is closer historically to Pearl Harbor in 1941 than it is to today. So if you were to think about it, the launch of MTV is more close, his- like, in terms of time to Pearl Harbor than today. That sort of shows how far in the future we are. So I'm like, let me check this out. So Pearl Harbor was uh, December 7th, 1941. And MTV launched on August 1st, 1981. I, I did not have cable when it launched, so I was not able to watch it. We got cable a couple years after that, and I became a huge MTV fan. I even became an intern there back in the late 80s at MTV News. But anyway, yeah, so uh, between, you know, one is 1941, one is 1981. So between Pearl Harbor and the launch of MTV, 39 years, 7 months, and 25 days. Right, so 39 years, 7 months, almost 8 months. How about uh, since since MTV launched? Let's see, since August 1st, 1981, and today, January 19th, 2024. 42 years, 5 months, and 18 days. We're much, we're much further away. Holy crap. When, when, when was the, uh, so I guess a couple years ago was the actual point where it was exactly equidistant. But man, yeah, we're, we're far in the future at this point in 2024. Well, I know people that are listening in the year like 2,500 are like, ha, 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 Frank just said he's far in the future, but he's 500 years ago. It's the way it works with time, right? We're so, it's so localized to the human experience. But, you know, I remember, of course, all growing up, everyone was obsessed with the year 2000. It's going to happen in the year 2000. And now it's the year 2024, for God's sake. What was the movie that t- took place in this year? Uh, the, a Boy and His Dog with Don Johnson. Was it Don Johnson? Yeah. In the year 2024. It was some sort of post-nuclear wasteland. In this timeline, at least, we're not post-nuclear yet. And hopefully we'll never be. Hopefully we'll be all right. Well, I'm sure there's a number of 2024s that are completely destroyed. But this is one of the ones that's uh, intact I wonder what percent of 2024s are doing, like, you know, ha- haven't experienced a enormous calamity. Knock on wood. Let's not, let's not tempt fate by talking about this. Right? Anyway. Yeah. It's, yeah. But what do you want? Time marches on. And, uh, you know, as far as my, what I experienced in my life thus far, I appreciate so much those earlier times of the 60s, which I barely remember, but I may have a few stray memories as I was a, I was a toddler at that time. 
The 70s, of course, so many incredible memories in the 80s, 90s, right? I wouldn't want to have missed out on any of that stuff. Um, I know the 80s especially is this key decade that everyone obsesses on in so many ways, and it really was unique, and it really was that special. I mean, yeah, day-to-day, it wasn't like you woke up every morning and were like, oh, my God, it's the 1980s. This is the best thing ever. It was like you sort of, you know, like all the time, you kind of focused on the negative. And, oh, my God, what am I going to do? But like like every time, you know, people are they're not like, like should it be like, oh, my God, it's the 2020s, it's the greatest decade ever. Yeah. Well, obviously, this decade is a bit challenged dec- de- decade-wise. But I'm just saying, in retrospect, the things that we experienced in that decade were remarkable. From the music to the movies to the com- home computers and, you know, before the Internet, um, all those aspects of cultures, the, the, the heyday of the shopping mall, the crazy hair everyone had. I, I didn't have it. Well, I, I, I probably, yeah, I probably had like a weird mullet, but more towards the early 90s. But anyway, yeah, the 80s really were that good. But now it's like this weird, like there was this vaporwave genre that was sort of like a fake 1980s. But that genre itself seems to have faded away. It's weird keeping track of this stuff. Like, like now we're things that felt kind of newer, like the hipster movement. I talked about that recently where everyone was obsessed with mustaches, those mustache finger tattoos and putting a bird on everything into Portlandia and all that stuff. To vaporwave, which is sort of like this weird genre of an, of an 80s that never was with sort of grid patterns. And, you know, it's funny. From graphic design, like a grid pattern got big in 1986. You see those, especially with gray background and a grid, like just 1986, maybe 87 was the big time for that. Um, but this vaporwave also, um, they have uh, like statues, like ancient Roman statues and, you know, the grid lines and sunsets. And it's like 80s-ish, but but now even that has sort of passed by and that weird internet 80s fake 80s subgenre is now itself historical. It's getting very, very confusing. Very confusing indeed. Anyway, on a totally different topic. Uh, this was actually in the shower, so these were what is known as shower thoughts about the origin of beings, the origins of beings, and. Uh, Yeah, it's kind of hard to figure out where to start with this one. but So here at the human level, each of us has an ori- personal origin is, is that we were born, right? Our mother and father, uh, you know, uh, got together and the sperm met the egg and uh, the egg started to develop into a tiny human, which is us, growing in your mother's belly and then coming out after nine months and then you're... So you, from that point, you continue to develop and grow until you become an adult. And at some point, you sort of get become aware that you exist and you're a being. And But your early origins remain sort of shrouded and you have complete amnesia of those earlier times. Or you don't retain memories for the first two, two years, let's say, uh, as, a, as, a, as a young human. So our origins are a bit... Like we just sort of we see pictures and we people talk about oh you were born at this point 
And we see it happening all around us. That seems to be the way. And then seemingly a uh, short lifespan of humans at this level is, uh, you know, one of the hallmarks of this type of existence here. But we, we see our origins. But in terms of higher level beings, which, of course, are not known to exist, this is all speculation, but higher level beings, uh, and you might, and I because I think about this all the time, like, it, I don't really feel like this existence I'm, I'm having here is Frank Edward Nora on Earth in the 21st century here now <coughs> um, is really all there is to it. I feel like we are all kind of somewhere else projecting into this world, uh, whether it's this is a computer game or, you know, something like a computer game but using technology far exceeding anything that we currently are familiar with. Um, that, that's why I talk about higher-level beings that may or may not have origins similar to ours. That is, are they born from another member of their species or... When you get high to higher levels, is it even necessary? Because it's to me, at higher levels, it's all about the mind, right? And intentions and will. So I was thinking that the origins. This is this was my shower thought. That <clears throat> a being at a high level, right, could start to um, consider scenarios of of spaces of places so for example the idea of a three-dimensional world like we live on with this uh, you know gravity that's pulling everything down <coughs> and uh right physicality and physics and mathematics and then in order to experience that how do you experience it you can look at it but the idea of of sort of creating a uh an individual physical um, shape, uh, an, a puppet, an avatar, so that you can experience a world from from within the world, right? The idea then is that the origin of a shape like a human shape um, could have been created just through the mind, through intentionality, right? That That is, the higher being simply wants explore a scenario that's been created by itself or other beings of the same kind and simply uh, wills into existence a uh, uh, a physical form that it it can experience that world from that perspective, right? So you might say that the origin of beings is is of mind, right? And then the idea is that <clears throat> perhaps a being like that would create multiple different <coughs> puppet bodies in multiple different realities and keep track of all of them. And uh, those beings then start to take on more individual characteristics. Like, though it's one mind kind of running all of these different, let's say, avatars or characters, right, because of the unique situation of each one, each one is starts taking on individual characteristics of the place that it is, right? And then those individual instances could then further um, manifest additional beings at, at, at a next level down, right? Maybe, for example, 
the being at the origin is created a five-dimensional landscape and created five-dimensional beings to explore that, right? And so at what point does it come where a scenario where it's not just pure creation as a thought, but actually this messy biological uh, beings creating other beings, right? And then dying out very quickly, right? It could be seen as sort of a deep down in terms of the iterations of this process, right? In terms of, um, you might say that you're, let's say you're in a world, in a puppet body, but you know you're in a puppet body and everyone else is also in these puppet bodies and it's, um, I'm sure there's, it's worthwhile, but at the same time, what if you could experience that without knowing that you're really a higher being? And then you could just say, okay, let's just all wipe out our memories temporarily. And But if there's no explanation for where where did all these people come from, right? Oh, I know how we can cover that up. We'll just have, right, we'll create a system by which beings can be sort of grown inside other beings and then they come out and they're real small, but then they grow up, right? So after a few generations of this, Especially the original ones would kind of know that, oh, well, we were the original ones. No one, we didn't, we weren't born. We were created. But then you bring this death and short lifespan thing in. And after a few generations, no one knows the wiser. And you completely have obscured the origins, right? And then if that is the goal, to live in a world where the origins are unknown, that has been achieved, right? But anyway, I was thinking of it more in terms of higher up I, I just the idea that it could just be a simply an intention right to create these kind of beings and then what was going on here is a direct like right here on planet earth in 2024 <coughs> uh, is a direct result of all these processes but this is sort of like deep down in the process kind of makes sense kind of doesn't but kind of makes sense do you think Anyways, on to something different here. Uh, probably, I would say one of my favorite foods of all time is ramen in all of its various forms. And of course, as I do follow a vegan diet, vegan ramen, which in, thankfully is fairly available around. There are a lot of different uh, different instant types you can make. Um, like recently, the... Uh, what is it? Fuku? What is the name of that one? I've gotten this one. This one's really good. They, they, uh, Fuku, Fuku something. Where is it? I have some over here, right? Yeah, yeah. Momofuku Asha. These are little little packets with uh, I think like the air. They call them air dried noodles, and uh, <coughs> you have to boil boil a little pot of water, throw throw the throw the noodles in for two or three minutes, <coughs> strain it or drain it, and then. Uh, Put the flavoring packets in, and uh, that's pretty good. If you may remember, I've tried all sorts of different ones. There, remember what was that one uh, ramen place? I think it was called Ramen Hero, and they would mail it to you with like dry ice, and you had to put it in your freezer, and it was like this <coughs> kind of complicated way of making it. But it 
it was like it was good, but it wasn't worth all the hassle and all the expense and all the rigmarole associated with it. Now, of course, at various times, there's been places out, like especially in New York City, that have vegan ramen. I think I just mentioned in the food court segment at the beginning. At the Hue, I used to, I used to go over there and get some uh, vegan ramen. Of course, with the eye-watering prices associated with food halls. Anyway, um, yeah, and of course, uh, Brooklyn Ramen at that uh, uh, grocery by the Japanese grocery by Katagiri, right? Uh, by uh, Grand Central. I would go there quite a bit. Vegan ramen. It's just it's sort of like a noodle soup. If you don't know what ramen is, listen. We can't assume everyone listening to this is going to know what I'm talking about. They're basic. It's basically like uh, it's like pasta in a soup. It's like pasta soup, but it's uh, ramen. It's like <coughs> like a Japanese origin. Yeah. <coughs> anyway, so it is my favorite thing. Um, so I so I found this one online, and I never had it before. So I ordered like a 12-pack. This is Chef Wu. Chef Wu Ramen. And I got these spicy tequila lime flavor. And uh, this is very interesting. I've, I've had this already. Kitty, what do you want? Vegas? Kitty, you want water? Yeah, it was scary. Like Vegas was in this state of mind where he didn't eat, he didn't drink. He was just trying to get back in the wall for like 24 hours. Now he's back to normal. Well, somewhat back to normal. Kitty, come on. He likes drinking water out of the sink. So I fill up the sink with water. And in what I can only imagine is from the morphic resonance of cats, he 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 likes to dip his paw in the water and then lick it off, which seems to be like a... a, a, a see, he's doing it right now. It's like a survival trait out in the wild. Like sort of... Yeah, because you can imagine a cat sort of in an area that they couldn't reach down with their head, but they can sort of reach the water to sort of lick the water off to get water. How would he know that? He's he's been in, he's was only an outdoor cat for like the first few weeks of his life. The morphic resonance. Yes. Anyway, so I'm really this ramen. I think was very uh, ha- has a characteristic that. It's less of a hassle, so this does not have the flavor pack, the little foil pack inside. You just open it up. I think this is how the original, like the Nissan cup of noodles, or cup noodles as they were called in the Mandela effect. Remember, that's another Mandela effect, remember? That very classic cup of noodles that was in U.S. supermarkets, even from back in the 70s, with the styrofoam cup, right? And it just, the stuff was in there. It was packed in. There was no flavor packets. There was no separation, nothing. So Chef Wu has this. It is just, it's all in there. The noodles and the flavorings are all sort of merged together, right, in the dry form there. Some dried, the freeze-dried vegetables on the top, right? So all you got to do, <coughs> is there any tequila in here? It's like the tequila flavor. Do you have, baby? Didn't I have that in that one poem I was talking about last, uh, Smoky Lime Phantom Cup? This is almost like a, it's like a lime cup. It's not really smoky, though. Maybe someone will make this smoky lime phantom cup at some point. But anyway, you just fill it up to the line with water. I have filtered water from my refrigerator. And you just throw it in the microwave for uh, three minutes. And that's it. 
less hassle. You don't have to worry about ripping open those little packets and, you know, those little foil packets that have, like, usually it's like a powder, right? A lot of times you could mess up and spill the powder all over everything, especially if you're a klutz like me. So it's better that there's no flavor packets in there, okay? Chef Wu. And I always just remember that Silly Dan song when I see Chef Wu. Are you with me, Dr. Wu? Are you really just a shadow of the man that I once knew? Are you crazy? Are you high? Or just an ordinary guy? Has it finally something to you? Are you with me, Dr. Wu? That, of course, is spelled W-U, whereas the ramen is W. Is it W-O-O? Yeah. Two ways of saying the same thing. Woo! So we're microwaving, and uh, yeah. Going to have some uh, noodles. These are pretty good. I, I don't know if, like, flavor-wise and everything else, I don't know if it's, like, the best ramen I've had, but the convenience factor, and plus, plus it's supposed to have high protein, 20 grams of protein. Per 71 grams, whatever that means. Is that per serving or per what? I don't know. They're always trying to trick you with these food labels. And of course, there's an ungodly amount of sodium in here, of course. 1,200 milligrams per cup. Oh, yeah, yeah, there's 20 grams of protein. Is that good? Uh, they're, they're saying it's good. I'll take their word for it. Kitty? Vegas? Come on. Oh! <laughs> He almost knocked it out of my hand. Kitty, come on. Vegas, what's going on? I know, the microwave is making a weird noise. Is that like a fan? A fan issue? Because I had fan issues with my uh, computer. Having a fan issue with the uh, microwave. Endless issues. Endless issues. Kitty. Kitties do not like ramen. Does, does, is there any kitty for ramen for kitties? I don't think they would really appreciate it. Ramen is not for kitty cats. The snow is pretty gentle out there. Kitty, come on. It's pretty gentle snow. It's not really, yeah, it's not really sticking. I have a long journey to go on tomorrow. I'm going to go down to uh, my friend Brian's birthday party. He's down there in uh, Pennsylvania. You know, outside of Philadelphia, but it's, a, it's a, about a two-hour ride from here. So it's just going to be two weasels because uh, Peter can't make it to the party. But we're going to have a three weasels adventure uh, two weeks from now. So it's going to be a lot of weasel stuff going on. So, yeah, I'll be driving down there. Because uh, a lot of times when me and Pete go, I, I drive to his house and we drive. But just driving straight there is basically uh, Turnpike down to uh, 276, Pennsylvania Turnpike. And it's actually... Uh, could be under two, uh, under two hours. Could be one forty possibly. All right. So now we're supposed to stir it and then cover it up for another three, two, three, four minutes. I don't know if this stirring is really particularly necessary. I did it a few times without stirring, and I didn't notice any difference. But it's twelve twelve, so I'll let it sit there for a little while. Then we'll have some ramen. Yeah. I think enough time has passed. What does it say? There's a, there's a uh, QR code. Scan for gourmet recipes. Oh, I guess you can add this to other things? I don't know. But yeah, this is, of course, vegan. They're calling it plant-based, I guess. 
to avoid the negative feeling people get. Many people get when they see the word vegan. It's, it, I mean, it has taken on an unfortunate uh, political tone to it and uh, associated with, uh, you know, sort of um, extreme politics at some level, which I don't think it should be like that. I'm not telling anyone, anyone else to be vegan. It's a personal choice. You can choose what you want to do. I would just like people to understand what it is. I'm not, I'm not trying to be all political. I just don't want to eat this kind of animal stuff. It's just, just, you know, it can be that simple. It doesn't have to be super complicated or controversial, you know. Like, some people may not want to eat that stuff and just be aware of that and don't be angry at it. Just be like, okay, you can eat what you want. Like, if people want to eat meat, listen. Uh, go ahead, I guess. I mean, it's not really something I would do at this point, but I used to when I was a kid, so... <coughs> um, Anyway, let's see how this is. So yeah, it's nice, noodly. Let's try a little bit of this. What other flavors do they have? Mmm. Wow, pretty good. Like I'm saying, you can get a little lime flavor in there. I don't know what. Where's the tequila? Let me look in the ingredients. Do they put any tequila in there? Is it just completely? Let's see. There's a lot of chemicals in here. Vegan chemicals, but chemicals nonetheless. Natural flavors. Yeah. Soda ash. What the hell? These ingredients. Soda ash. Jeez. Like if you were to pour, is the ash of like sodas, like like Coke or Pepsi? Does that that become ash? Hmm. I don't know. So, I don't know. Is there any lime in here? I guess it's all in the flavoring, yeah. I guess any... <coughs> a tequila-lime flavor could just be any chemical that gives you any sort of sense of lime-tequila kind of flavor. Anyway, it's all right. Let me see. Let me see what other flavors are available. No, I mean, I like it. I, I'm saying the flavor... I would... I love everything about it, but the the taste of it is a slightly underwhelming, but... Anyway, maybe it's just this particular flavor. Let's see what we can find. Mm-hmm. Here we go. Gotta... Flavors. Are you with me, Dr. Wu? They have roasted chicken flavor. I guess these are all vegan, but they have meat-based flavors. Braised beef flavor, Thai lemongrass, sweet chili togarashi, and that's it. <laughs> what about the flavor I got? Is that a flavor? <laughs> it's not even on here. <coughs> what the hell? Is it, is it like discontinued? That's weird, right? Hmm. Wait a second. say what flavors they have on uh, Amazon. We're going to visit the Chef Wu store. Chicken, roasted chicken, tequila. Oh, so now the tequila one, maybe maybe it's like an Amazon exclusive. Braised beef, Thai lemon grass, and sweet chili togarashi. So it's just this additional flavor is on uh, Amazon. Great. I like it. So 
I wasn't aware of this. It's actually uh, Japan has now landed a, a, a remote lander on the moon. They succeeded where the American company failed. Um, <coughs> but they're saying this one also is in jeopardy. But there's like a live stream here from Japan. This is like going on right now. Let's see what we can get here. Lev 2 is working through Lev 1. So they are working normally. <coughs> were you able to confirm that they were taking It's a press conference in Japan. Or anything that's already being confirmed or any timing in the future, you know. That confirmation so they're the fifth country to land on the moon, supposedly. The being received for Lev 1 and Lev 2. And within those signals, what sort of data are included? We are still performing analysis, uh, so whether or not we. So it's the sniper probe. They're communicating with the probe, but it faces a serious problem. Several more days to make such a judgment, and we'll be able to tell you. Regarding Lev 2, is it functional? Is it working? Regarding Lev 2, it is working through. Lev one, you have we have to analyze some images through level. Yeah, yeah. Somehow in 2024, every time you try to go to the moon, it's all sorts of problems. We had it back 55 years ago, no problem. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, in other news, it looks like Pitchfork.com is possibly shutting down. I I can't really tell it because when I go to Pitchfork.com, the site is still here. This has been a uh, sort of an infamous music review site, which has this sort of um, arrogance to it, which I think can be admirable at some level, but tiresome as well. Yeah, I mean, I do think that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm of two minds on people who are sort of arrogant and pompous about their knowledge of music, which... It's very good to be knowledgeable about music and have a lot of thoughts about it, but um, where it kind of slips into arrogance, like, you know, the old days going to a, like a cool record store and the people that work there would be kind of like have like shitty personalities and be all like arrogant about it <coughs> uh, can sort of turn you off. Like I, there's that, there was that place, Other Music on East 3rd Street, right across from Tower Records that always had that kind of vibe to it. And you sort of suspected that the people were just sort of getting off on being able to feel like they were better than anyone else without perhaps necessarily – that was perhaps out of proportion to their actual knowledge or what they're providing. Um, and so it can turn people off. And I think Pitchfork had the same issue. I mean I, I was never a big Pitchfork reader, but of course you'd run across Pitchfork reviews. And at one point they were considered very influential – and getting a good pitchfork review was was really big, <coughs> but apparently they're I don't know they're owned by GQ magazine, and Pitchfork is going to be merged into GQ.com. Like I guess it'll be the music section of GQ. So I don't know if Pitchfork.com is going away. I'm not sure. I read the news, but the site is still here. What, what's their most recent review? It's from Slater Kinney. Oh wait, wasn't that that? What's her name from? Yeah, Carrie Brownstein from uh, from Portlandia that I mentioned. They're still making music. I never got into Sleater Kinney. They got a 7.7. Wow. Sleater Kinney are synonymous with determined 
determinedly clawing out a sense of self and ripping up patriarchal models to restructure the rock and roll order. Yeah. That's a pitchfork review for ya. But yeah, they're they're gone, man. They're gonna shut down soon, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, pitchfork hit with layoffs restructuring under GQ. Condé Nast Chief Content Officer Anna Wintour announced the news in an email to staff on Wednesday. Oh. It will be absorbed by GQ magazine. Was that Gentleman's Quarterly? I don't know. Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I guess I guess the, the website's just not making any money. I don't know. Pitchfork was founded in 1996 and grew to become one of the leading voices in indie music coverage. Condé Nast acquired it in 2015. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I, I understand it, but I don't understand. Like, if you have a good thing going, like, hey, we're the top music review site on the Internet. Oh, we should sell ourselves to, to someone else. Like, why can't they just stay in business for themselves? Like, what if, if, they're, if they're the top, why can't they, you know what I mean? I guess a lot of it is they, they take out loans to expand hoping that things will be good so they could pay it back. But I guess with the cyclical nature of economy and stuff, inevitably they fall behind on their payments and then they have to sort of, then, then that's curtains for them. But if they know there's a cycle, don't, shouldn't they be a little more cautious in terms of taking out loans to expand? Kid A, please, Vegas, you can't go into the wall. No, you cannot go into the wall anymore, Kitty. All right? No wall, kitty. No. No, kitty. No. You can't go into the wall. Yeah. You know what I'm saying. I don't know. It's just... <coughs> but I guess the individuals making the decisions could get a big uh, payday themselves, right, in the process of selling a company or shutting a company down. What do they always do? They always, like when they're going bankrupt, they just give themselves like mass like uh, bonuses and stuff to, to, towards the end of the sinking ship. I guess that's you know so the individuals make out, but the company itself just this crumbles and collapses. <laughs> the hell is there's something, something not right going on with all this stuff? What do you want? But personally, I don't mind. I don't really read Pitchfork, and I'm fine with it not being around. Anyway, as I, as I mentioned on last episode, I did want to give a full review of the movie Poor Things, which, which we saw this past weekend. And um, I didn't really want to, I, like last time, I didn't want to say much about it because I wanted to give all of you a chance to see it without having, to know, having known about it. But this is going to be spoilers. So if uh, you're going to you want to see it without any preconceived notions, which I do recommend because I saw the movie Poor Things without knowing, just I really didn't know anything about it. And it was a fantastic cinematic journey. Uh, and, and as I said, one of the best movies I've seen in recent history. Here's an article that came out a couple days ago that'll tell you something about the movie. Uh, Emma Stone defends honest sex scenes in Poor Things. This is from CNN. Hollywood star Emma Stone has responded to criticism of the graphic sex scenes in her latest film, Poor Things, telling the BBC that sex is a crucial part of her character's storyline. 
the uproarious, frequently filthy adaptation of Scottish writer Alistair Gray's 1992 novel, follows Stone's character, Bella Baxter, a deceased woman reanimated with the brain of her unborn child. Sex plays an important role in the film, as one way Bella learns to understand her body and how others covet it. There's a sex-positive third-wave feminism to her, taken to extremes when Bella learns she can act profit from the activity she loves and turns to prostitution to fund her studies. We are our own means of production, she jokes. Though the film, which was released on December 22nd in the U.S. and January 12th in the U.K., has mostly received positive reviews, its frank and abundant sex scenes have proved too much for some moviegoers and critics. BBC Radio 4 host Samira Ahmed addressed the themes of sex and prostitution in Tuesday's interview, saying the scenes were quite graphic, adding, I think it's fair to say, unusual these days in Hollywood. Stone responded that the decision had been subject to a lot of discussion during the making of the film. So much of this was about being true to Bella's experience, she said. Uh, the sex, obviously a huge part of her experience and her growth as it is, I th- as I think it is for most people in life, Stone explained. But I see it as just one aspect of many to her. Her discovery of food, her philosophy, travel and dance, sex is another aspect, she continued. So... Anyway, yeah, so that's so it was interesting because I, I absolutely love the movie. I thought it was fantastic. It really reminded me of, you know, the art house films that you would see back in, say, like the 80s or 90s, something that really was uh, a high degree of difficulty, lots and lots of themes that are being explored and very well executed. Um, I felt that, yeah, I mean, the sex scenes are is something that can turn a lot of people off because I, I guess they're really because there used to be more of that kind of stuff in movies I guess but I guess in recent history there's been less it can be gratuitous but in this case it's not it is actually an essential part of the story and it's uh, it does seem that it's, it's very necessary to tell the story and Emma Stone is fantastic in this role um, yeah all right, let me go outside and have a cigarillo. We'll talk more about this movie. So, yeah. I think part of the reason it's really important to see this movie without much preconceived notions, which if you're hearing this, hopefully you've already seen the movie, um, is that, as the article mentioned, you find out at some point in the movie the origin of Bella Baxter, which is that she was... We see this woman jumping off a, like a bridge in London killing herself, trying to kill herself, essentially. But her body is retrieved, and this mad scientist, uh, Godwin Baxter, um, finds her barely alive, but she also has an unborn child. So as the mad scientist, and this is part of the movie where you start off knowing nothing, and you're slowly getting these facts, and eventually you get to the answer that he decided to uh, (coughs) cut out the baby remove the mother's brain and then put the baby's brain in her head just to see what would happen. Just insane, uh, mad scientist stuff. So that's the character. She's sort of, a, she's a, an infant in an adult woman's body. But that's, she's developed because of that, her mind and is developing at an accelerated rate. So, I mean, it's definitely a very interesting idea for a movie. Uh, but, it starts off, you don't really know anything, 
And at the same time, the Bella character also doesn't know anything. So you're sort of discovering the world as she's discovering the world, which is really interesting, right? So that's an interesting way of constructing the movie. So it starts off, uh, the scene with the woman jumping on the bridge is in color, but then you're in black and white. A lot of scenes have this weird, <coughs> like, fisheye lens <laughs> uh, thing going on inside this house. And uh, you get introduced to Bella, who's, yeah, acting really bizarre and mentally deficient. And uh, as, and then the story progresses from there, where more people are getting involved in her story. She eventually meets up with Mark Ruffalo's character, and he takes her away on a trip. And so she, her discovery of sex and things like that and the world around her, she's sort of a fish out of water. She, she's sort of showing the world, discovering the world in a different kind of way. But this world itself is itself a fanciful world. It's like a uh, a steampunk late 19th century world. It reminded me of some ways, if you remember the a TV series uh, Penny Dreadful, which took place in, you know, 1890s England. And it had all the monsters. It had a Frankenstein, a Bride of Frankenstein... Was it, I think there was a Dracula, a Wolfman, you know, all this. They had all that kind of stuff. It was a pretty good show. Remember that show? Timothy Dalton was in it. That's a good show. But also the Frankensteins in that show were, like, ultra-intelligent, you know. And so Bella eventually becomes very intelligent as well. These are all very spoilers. But uh, it kind of reminded me of that. But this is a really weird, like, you, you know, you're inside this house, and then, then you'll see, like, these bizarre creatures like a, a, a chicken with a, do- with a dog's head and a dog with like a goose's head and these really disturbing um, sort of uh, grotesque uh, creations that in this world I guess you know sort of transplanting brains and putting heads on different bodies is much easier than it would be in the real world and Willem Dafoe plays the, the you know the Godwin character the mad scientist and he's incredibly disfigured and looks almost like a Frankenstein because his father was a uh, sort of this psychopathic scientist that was just experimenting on his son just you know essentially torturing him and disfiguring him terribly just just for the sake of science but the world itself is really beautifully uh, it's it, it's it's sort of the world building is a thing unto itself as well and that that's why I feel like this movie in many different ways they set a really high degree of difficulty because it sort of feels like the design feels a little Tim Burton-ish. The epic scale of the movie feels a little Kubrickian. And there's like, there's, there's so many aspects of the movie that, because some of the aspects are somewhat derivative of other things, but somehow it all works. It's well done. And Emma Stone's performance, Emma Stone is not someone that I would have, partic- I don't really know, like what else was she in? I don't really know much about her, but this is a super difficult role. And it, this movie sort of hinged on whoever was playing this role uh, doing it right, and she absolutely did. It's a, it's a weird role. It's a tough role. And, yeah, there's a lot of sex in there. I, I didn't particularly... I mean, none of the sex scenes or the nudity is really titillating or erotic at all. It, <coughs> it was in service of the story, and it was not... Uh, I think it was all in service of the story and not really designed to be, uh, you know, particularly pornographic in nature. I mean, could they have toned it down a bit? Yes, they could have. But 
it didn't take away f- from anything in the movie for me. But looking at the reviews online, uh, there are people like me who would loved it. I thought it was an amazing movie. Uh, but so many other people give it like one star and hated it. And all of those mentioned that it of, of disgusting, even though there really weren't like I left after 10 minutes, but there was no sex scenes in the first 10 minutes. I mean, it's actually super uncomfortable in the beginning. You really don't know what's going on. And there's weird. It's just weird, uncomfortable stuff. Eventually, it does turn into color again when they go to uh, Lisbon, Portugal, and uh, then they're on a boat, and then they're in Paris, and you know. Um, but I thought the movie, um, it, it, it's, you know, I think a movie usually sets out goals and to achieve, and in this case, it did achieve those goals. It explored a lot of very interesting um, themes and ideas. And I think, you know, people are saying, oh, it's a feminist message, it's woke. Well, I don't, in this case, I wouldn't, I, I to me, <sighs> woke is a term I would use for movies that are trying to shoehorn things in that aren't really part of the story and don't really belong in the story. In this case, the central story was, a, a you know, exploration of the human condition through this very unique character, and everything in the context of that made sense, right? And I feel like the world building is, it was so fanciful and really beautiful uh, designs um, that, but clearly a, a world that's not our own, like the ship, this is really bizarre, weird kind of steampunk ship that they were on. And the skies in the world they were in were always really bizarre, weird. The clouds and the colors and everything was very different than this world. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that in that sense, I thought the world building could have been pretty heavy-handed, but it turned out that they got to the edge right to the point where it would get a little overbearing, which is that the design of the sets doesn't, uh, you know, or back, there's supposed to be a backdrop and not be so obtrusive. But I, th- I think they managed that. But again, they went right up to the edge of it becoming a bit, overly obtrusive but they didn't quite get over the edge so it was good in that way <clears throat> so yeah I mean it was thrilling because it was actually a very good quote unquote art house film that uh, really was well done and uh, rather unexpected like right it's like uh, these days it's hard to find a movie like this and just uh, a few days ago uh, Fargo, the TV series, season five of Fargo finished. And while it's very different, I do feel like there were some similarities in that people also called it having a feminist message, this and that. But again, it was all in service to the story. Um, Fargo season five, I have to say, absolutely fantastic. And I've seen some of the other seasons of Fargo, but none of them could compare to this season five. And you could just skip ahead to season five. You don't have to watch the other seasons because it's an anthology show. Every season is its own show, basically. But um, so good. And they, you know, when it was, as many times a TV show is good and then falters at the end. Uh, Leftovers is a show that I would say was fantastic and then t- collapsed towards the end and it got ruined. This, sh- this show stuck the landing. Uh, it succeeded in... Uh, being good all the way to the end. And, 
I'm just it was just so good. So I mean I'm sort of being spoiled with good TV shows and movies lately. Uh, the theme of season five. It's loosely based on the movie more than the other seasons of Fargo. It takes place in, in 2019. And uh, this, you know, the, the husband works at a car deal, owns a car dealership, and the, the wife, they, 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 they kidnap her. But then it all sort of changes and goes off the rail. And John Hamm plays this great character who's this sheriff in North Dakota who's, who's sort of like a super religious like weirdo kind of guy and uh yeah I just strongly recommend it it's on Hulu I guess it was so good and my wife just binged the whole thing in like a day or two she liked it too so even though sometimes you know the quality level has gone down on a lot of stuff occasionally some good stuff comes out And in other news, I did mention this a while back, uh, Sleep No More, the theatrical experience in New York City, is shutting down. And I've, I went to it a number of times. You may have remember on the show, went with Jeff from Houston a number of times. And uh, so I kind of got my fill of it. I understood. But a lot of people I knew, like my neighbors, my wife, I'm saying, we got to go, we got to go. It's shutting down in January. And we had intended to, but, you know, as such things go, it never happened, and I think it's shutting down this week or something like this week, or may have already shut down. It was an incredible experience that's gone now. Uh, <coughs> let me actually look it up and see if there's any chance of seeing it. Uh, I would have liked my wife to have seen it, my neighbors. my brother. I went with my brother once, so he saw it. Um. Ah, look at this. Look at this. They they extended it. They extended it. It was, origi- oh, it was originally going to close the t- January 28th. It's only the 19th now, so I would have had p- possibly a time. But now it's going till February. All right, so I'm going to really bring this up to everyone. It is uh, running now through February 25th, so we will have time to go. And, uh, yes, I'm glad, I, I'm glad I looked this up. So, anyway, just in general what it is, it's a – you walk into this building – this huge interior space that you can walk around at your leisure. You have to wear a mask, kind of a creepy-looking mask, and you're not allowed to talk, and you're just sort of an observer. And the actors um, are sort of acting out uh, Macbeth, which I can say because I'm not in the theater. I don't have to call it the Scottish flair. People in the theater world cannot say the word Macbeth because it's bad luck in the, in the theater world. Through, like, interpretive dance, and the, the world inside this building is amazing you have free reign to walk around follow the actors there's dozens of actors performing dozens and dozens of scenes all at once I think uh, <coughs> Jeff had told me that if you had a perfect strategy you would have to go 13 times to see Sleep No More to see everything Right? there's so much going on I went 4 times I think I saw totally new stuff every single time it was amazing and uh, so this is not an experience. I don't even know how the heck you could preserve it. I mean, the only way you could sort of present this experience, like normally a Broadway show, you could film it, which apparently, but that's illegal, you know, uh, from the uh, the union perspective. Though apparently, because my sister-in-law is in the theater, 
she has to, she does use the term Scottish play and she refers to that one um, and this is not Macbeth it's just loosely based on Macbeth but um, she said that any Broadway show will be videotaped but the tape is held in a vault and you need to be in the industry and have a reason to see it uh, these recordings of famous Broadway shows are deeply locked down and in, I think in some cases you're only allowed to see it once in your entire life like you can only watch it once listen it's art shouldn't it be shared all of these arch rules are kind of a turn off but anyway um, I don't know how you preserve this one I mean you'd have to create you'd have to use like a video game engine to sort of create the entire environment and all of the characters and all of the things they're doing then you could possibly recreate it as sort of a video game in a way that would be a massive project though so anyway I'm glad I saw that. There's an extension, and uh, yeah, so maybe we'll go now. And the hits just keep on coming. I, I, I mean, like, uh, I just discovered this album, like, moments ago. And I'm, my mind is blown. I never heard of this album before. And... Uh, it is like, uh, you know, it's in the, the genre of Berlin school. And uh, just incredible. Yeah, Ber Berlin school, like electronica or techno, whatever you want to say. Um, this is. It is uh, called Departure of the. Sorry. Departure from the Northern Wasteland by Michael Honig. That's H-O-E-N-I-G. Michael Honig. Departure from the Northern Wasteland, 1978. And this is what it says. A short time after leaving Tangerine Dream, Michael Honig started a short collaboration with Klaus Schultz. Uh, uh, as a duo called Time Wind. I think I've heard Time Wind. And then with Manuel Gotching from Ashra Temple, which eventually resulted in the release of Early Winter. Finally, in late 1976, he started to work on a solo release that would become Departure from the Northern Wasteland. By many, fans of electronic music regard regarded as a classic album of the Berlin School style. Michael Honig was supported on guitars by two former bandmates from Agitation Free, Lutz Ulbrich and Mickey Dua. The latter wrote and played lead harmonies on the track Sun and Moon while Lutz Lul Ubrich played on the title track. The voices on Voices of Wear were performed by Uschi Obermeier, a German model formerly of Amandul. So here's a comment. This album for me is the absolute holy grail, standing unbeaten through the decades. Right, it's like, and I found out about this uh, as a random post on the... Um, Tangerine Dream page on Facebook. And, uh, man, I'm a huge Berlin School fan. And uh, this sounds amazing. I've never heard it before in my life. Damn. Some good stuff. And I've been discovering a lot of stuff recently. I've been really digging into uh, Canterbury scene bands like uh, Caravan and Camel listening to uh, Beach Boys Love You from 1977. 
So I've been finding a lot of good new music, but this blows everything else away. So yeah, the title track is like 20 minutes and 55 seconds. I guess that's side one of the, the vinyl. Unbelievable. The other songs are, uh, so this is Departure from the Northern Wasteland, and next song is Hanging Garden Transfer, then Voices of Wear, and then Sun and Moon. This is amazing, amazing stuff. The Tangerine Dream and all of the music made by all of the various people that were in the band over the years is just an incredible world of music. Starting to get dark out there. Yeah, this snow didn't amount to too much. It didn't seem it doesn't seem to have stuck on the pavement. The cars have like a dusting on them. It's still going, but this is not a major snow event. So anyway, I was talking about fish and how it can be very expensive to go to all these fish things. I don't think I'm gonna go to all of them. I don't know if I'm gonna go to any of them. I don't know. I don't I, I don't know. This sphere out in Vegas. To fly to Vegas, get a hotel out there, and spend thousands of dollars on these tickets. Massive expense. I, I don't know. In the festival, uh, the Mondegreen is just sort of a... Logistically, uh, it, it has a lot of, lot of issues. Uh. <coughs> but that's not all. You can also spend money on, on fish products like I do. I usually get the fish t-shirts when I buy the streaming. So when you buy streaming... Um, you can watch the show at home from the comfort of your own your own house. And you can opt to buy a T-shirt as well, which I always do. So that's the main reason why I have tons of uh, fish T-shirts. But one thing I saw at the uh, when I was at uh, Madison Square Garden on New Year's Eve, which that was the most important fish show to attend, and I was there. So it's all sort of like like the fact that I was there, there's n- there'll never be another fish show as important as that, I don't think. They had this, the, the, the socks, fish socks. Uh, save Game Henge socks. And it was one of the clues people were talking about when they were saying they were going to do Game Henge, which they did. Um, so, the beautiful socks, green, gold, and uh, a red color. And I was thinking of getting them, but by the time I got to the merch booth, they were all sold out. So I figured I would buy them online. Um, on the website, it says, uh, this is a pre-order. Expected ship date is January 30th. So I ordered them. I ordered two pairs. Now these are, now, like many fish things, this is not cheap. In fact, you might consider the price to be outrageous at $25 per pair of socks. Who's ever heard of such a thing? But I really wanted them because... I, um, I've been wanting to get new socks anyway because, you know, what I call my loungewear, you know, when I'm, uh, change for the nighttime bedtime thing, I usually wear, you know, some sweatpants, some socks and a t-shirt and, uh, the socks have just been annoying me. So I've been thinking of getting new socks anyway. And I'm like, what would be better than having game hand socks? And uh, to wear as my la- part of my loungewear. So I figured if I had two, I'd always have one available. If one was in the wash, the other one I could use. 
So, yes, I understand. It's horribly expensive. But they're really cool. It says Save Game Engine in a cool sort of old-style font on the side. And then on the bottom, it says Land of Lizards. Right? Land of Lizards. Come from the Land of Lizards. The Lizards, they have died. The lizards, they have died. Yes, so I have my socks. I'm so happy. But, you know, I, I realize, like, had I been... It's almost like... It, my fandom of fish has gotten so great. Imagine if I was a, a, at this level in the past, I would have spent all my money on on fish. It does get to be a bit much. I'm trying I'm trying to mitigate things. I'm trying not to spend too too much money. I mean, the streaming isn't cheap either. I'm still holding out hope for the sphere though. I think the sphere if those ticket prices come down cuz I mean, who can afford thousands of dollars for a ticket? I mean, there's some people out there, but obviously there's still a ton on sale. Obviously people, you know, for the four nights don't feel like, a, you know, a pair of tickets for the four nights. As I said, I could have got, it would have been $1,000 if uh, I got them on the, on the on sale. And instantly they shot up to 7000 Who's going to buy that even now when it's at 5500 No, no. Just, I mean, it, it, I, I don't think I can afford that. But just on a matter of principle, no. But if it goes down to like, I don't know, twice as much, I don't know, 2000 <coughs> where, where am I getting all this money anyway? I don't know. Money just, the whole idea is the concept of money flies out the window when it comes to fish products, okay? Fish experiences. And of course, Vegas, is an, Las Vegas is an amazing place. You know, all day you can do Vegas stuff, Las Vegas stuff, and then at night you can go see fish. Seems like a good deal to me. Yeah, I was there in, uh, what, 2018? 2019? One of those 20 years, 20, in the 20 teens. It was an amazing trip. And you came along. To the, you know, it was an amazing trip. Anyway, I have my, my game hinge socks from Fish. I'm very happy. See, can you put a price on happiness? <laughs> yes. $25 socks is probably too expensive, but, you know. Where else am I going to get game hinge socks? I don't know. It's not like there's cheap Chinese versions of them. It's an, it's an obscure product. What do you want? Yeah, I've been listening to this album. Really good stuff. Amazing album. Another holy grail album The Berlin School Yeah, so it's, it's kind of cool I'm going to be going down to see Brian you know, in Pennsylvania for his birthday tomorrow Yeah, two hour drive but I was thinking about um, trying to go to Honeygrow I don't think I've ever been to a Honeygrow um but they, Honeygrow is a, it's like a food place, kind of like a Chipotle kind of place, um, where they make bowls of food and stuff. And they expanded into New York City, and they created instead of keeping their company's name, they called it Mini Grow by Honeygrow. I guess it was a slightly different configuration. I don't know. I don't know if it's a good idea to confuse people like that. But anyway, I used to love going there. It was on Madison, I think. Um, I used to go there 
all the time to get those uh, spinach noodles. You may have heard in years past me going there. And uh, then they shut down and no more spinach noodles for me. So I saw, I mean, whereas they don't have any hunting grows around here, I remembered it was a Philadelphia brand. So I saw there's a, a hunting grow at this uh, Plymouth Crossing Mall right on the way, like literally right next to the Pennsylvania Turnpike that I'll be on. I could get off real quick, grab some uh, honey grow. They don't have the same exact dishes, but they have like a vegan stir-fry, coconut something noodle. And uh, it'd be cool to go there, you know. So I, m- I might do that and then, of course, go to the mall. So I have to leave a little bit early. Of course, I have to go to a mall in Pennsylvania. Come on. Usually we go to King of Prussia, but I'm, not, I'm sure we must have been to this one because it's so close to Brian. I think we went there. I think Was that the time we went there? And we bought those Playmobil toys and we were sitting around building them. I have vague memories of that. Let me look. In my uh, Google Photos, if I, if, if I type Playmobil, will it see? Will it be able to find them? I hope. They have, they have artificial intelligence, don't they? Hmm. Well, they found some Playmobil toys in a window. What the hell is this from? They found it, but, hmm. Wait, where'd it go? I'm just trying to remember if if I can remember if we went to that mall. August 27th, 2019. Hmm, August 20... August 27th, 2019. Oh, it was in uh, Athens, Greece. Okay. Oh, I just must have seen something interesting in a store window in in Athens. Yeah, it was all these uh, uh, little statues, cartoon statues of different professions. That's kind of interesting, yeah. Oh, I've always been kind of fascinated by lines of little statues that are just sort of sold in gift shops. And there's a few Playmobil uh, history ones down there. That's not what I'm looking for. I'm sorry, it's called the Plymouth Meeting Mall. Okay. Hmm. And they're saying there's like a Legoland there? Huh. There's one at American Dream also. Let me look at the street view inside the mall to see. I don't know if we went to this one. Ooh, Piercing Pagoda. There you go. Even though, didn't they change their name to something else? Yeah, I've been somewhat obsessed with the word pagoda recently. I was thinking of that uh, Donald Fagan song, The Great Pagoda of Fun. Oh, yeah, last time I was talking about um, collecting aquarium pagodas, right, that whole concept. Oh, there's a Dave & Buster's there. Hmm. I don't know. I remember there was like a Five Below. I don't know if we went to this mall. And if not, why why haven't we gone to that mall? All right, I think I'm going to this mall tomorrow. That's my mall plan. Maybe I could get sushi and french fries instead of... Uh, do they have a food court? Let me see. Instead of getting Honey Grow. Because the Honey Grow is like a it's, it's a... it's its own building, apparently, on the edge of the parking lot. And those type of places have their own liminal charms, per se, but... Could this be that dead mall we were... We were no, this mall looks... Well, this is actually... This may be that dead mall we went to, though, 
because this is from 2017. And it, I think this may be that mall we that was dead that we walked around recently. It could be. It was still alive in 2017, but <coughs> hmm. A lot of unanswered questions, indeed. How about their food court? What's what's their food court situation here? Let's see. Do they have a food court? What's going on with these people? Dying. <clears throat> Benihana. Legoland. What? Mm. Shake Shack. Yeah, no. Popcorn Land. Sarku, Japan. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the hell's going on. What's going on with this place? I don't know. The freaking P.F. Chang's with that font. Enviro. Yeah. Yeah, I think I'll stick to the honey grown. Yeah, but getting back to that earlier topic higher beings and the fact that we might each be higher beings. This uh, situation could be viewed kind of like nested Russian dolls, that is. Right. When we uh, go up one level, which is when I'm assuming when our characters here on Earth are asleep, we can unplug from the matrix however it works. Um, I'm thinking that the next are us at the next level up have you know fully developed psychic power so that you can sort of psychically connect to um a simulation as opposed to having as we see in like the matrix or something to plug it in a plug in your head i'm thinking it could be just a psychic connection but who knows but let's say you were to um unplug from the simulation temporarily and then you're back to your next level up self right I guess my question is, how much more do we know at that level? Because assuming, assuming that there's another level above that and above that, etc. Or is there? So I, I guess the idea is, that was kind of my uh, thought process, that show title, A Great Deal More Revealed, was sort of the answer to that question. What is it, what do we know at the next level? And it's a great deal more is revealed. <clears throat> So we would know more, but probably not know everything. And probably the big questions are still are still mysteries, but we'd know a lot more. So how far do you have to go up these nested layers before you kind of get the big picture? What the hell's going on in this universe? I, I, I think there's uh, at this level. It's hard, hard to know. But I think, right, without clearly being at this level, there's a mechanism to block your other memories and your sense of self um, from, right, being part of your cognition at this level. That is, I, I can't remember if this scenario has validity. I only have the vaguest of impressions of what I might be like, but we can... Uh, infer a few things, right? We can sort of infer that there is some reason. This is this is one of the questions. Is this experience we're in, is this something we want to be doing? Or are we randomly doing it? Or is it some kind of punishment? 
right? What is, like, why would the next level us be um, entering this simulation? And my gut tells me it is something that I would want to, I want to do, right? As opposed to being forced or being a punishment or something. So that tells me something about the, the, my identity at the next level, which is that, that this world that I'm in is something that <coughs> I like, I'm interested in, right? So this time period we're living in, all the pop culture, all the weirdness, all the fun stuff, the music, discovering old music, is something that uh, appeals to me at the next level up. Now, this can't tell us too much about it because um, – do we even know? Would we be in a human form the next level up, or could we be anything, right? Um, I think likely our bodies would be more than three dimensions, four or five dimensions maybe, which is very hard to visualize at this level. Um, but there's something appealing about this, what we're experiencing here, to the us at the higher level, right? That's kind of, if it is voluntary or in fact deliberate, I get the sense that it's a bit of, it, it's a bit expensive in terms of time and energy and focus for me at the next level to be projecting into this simulation. So it must be something I really care about in order to, um, Endure the cost, whatever that may be. And of course, this is all pure speculation, and it's just, uh, you know, I, I feel like, I personally feel like I have to keep investigating this stuff. Though, it's interesting that the reason I can't answer these questions is because, in theory, I deliberately, myself, or allowed to be placed a veil of forgetfulness on myself when I'm at this level. And then assumedly, I don't know how it works, as I said, like maybe every night at some point when you're asleep, you are able to wake up in that other world and you'll remember everything, everything from this world plus everything at that level. And however long you stay up there, eventually you'll come back down. I don't think it has to be a one-to-one time, like it's not like, oh, you have a few hours while your avatar is asleep to operate in the quote-unquote real world. I think you could potentially spend years before you go back in, right? And then it sort of picks up where it left off. It's just one scenario that's possible based on some gut feelings and some speculation. But the question is then, right, the sense of doing that, right, would that then imply that at that next level up, it's also another simulation and higher beings than that are, right, projecting into that level and then, yeah, how many levels are there? I don't know. A lot. So I don't know if there's any 
Like I, and I understand, I get that it would be not be appropriate to transfer information directly into here because that would go against the, the nature of this place or the purpose of this place. Hmm. But if you were to branch off a timeline where you... <coughs> so you keep timeline A exactly as it is now, where you really don't have any awareness of who you really are. Keep that going, but then branch off a of timeline B where you do remember who you really are, but you stay here. What would that do to you? I think it would, uh, yeah, I think it would take you out of the game, really. I think it would make this place much less interesting <clears throat> if you knew it was just a game or the equivalent to a game. You know, <clears throat> I understand that our understandings of processes and technologies, we you know, usually use our highest level, so we're thinking, oh, it's like a computer simulation. Whereas if you were to explain something like this back in the 19th, uh, 20th, 19th century, people, oh, it's like a, a clockwork me mechanism at a higher level, you know. <clears throat> like they sort of thought the universe was a clockwork universe. So I'm not saying it's literally a computer server somewhere. I'm saying it's a type of system that's far more advanced than what we understand as a computer server that can um, run world simulations. Right? That's the idea. Anyways, with that, I'd like to say thank you so much for patching into this episode of The Overnightscape. I'm your host, Frank Edward Nora, here in Nutley, New Jersey, on Friday, January 19th, 2024. And, uh, yeah, you can find all the information you need at onsug.com right now, O-N-S-U-G.com. And uh, <coughs> ongoing into the future, the book is the vessel in which this project resides. You could buy a copy of the book. Just go to onsug.com, click on Get the Book, and you can find where to buy it. The price is set so low that I will not make any royalties or money on it because this is a non-commercial project. We have a mass archive over 14,000 hours, over, almost over 11, almost 12,000 uh, individual shows. And uh, <coughs> it, it, we're very, very focused on preserving this archive on into the near and far future. Uh, because I really do think that people in the future would be interested in these recordings. And this is almost sort of like a message in a bottle from the past into the future. You know, and uh, you might also look at this as if this is a simulation, this would be then a project by which Hire Me uh, a, a, a sort of puts myself in this scenario as a way to create content, in this case, audio content, but it's sort of like creating art, right? Imagine that uh, any type of art could benefit from this type of, uh, like imagine if you're an, an, an artist and you can sort of project yourself into a certain past where you felt it was a very interesting place to exist in order to create art. And I have sort of made a conclusion that the world we're in is ultimately some kind of art project anyway. 
anyway, we'll see. Anyway, just go to onsug.com. You can uh, we click on get the book. You can order it. Twelve dollars and fifty nine cents currently in the U.S. from Amazon, and you can also download the free PDF version, which does also have the digital extension. So you get the exact an exact copy of what the printed book plus another three thousand or so pages, which contains all of the descriptions and much of the show art. And it's all for free. Isn't it amazing? It sure is. Anyway, um, remember, your voice can easily be in this archive if you participate in Overnight Escape Central. Dave in Kentucky has taken the show over, and the first episode is out. It's going to be monthly now. The first episode was Fast Food, The Occult, and Other Bad Ideas. And... uh, You can listen to that right now. The next episode, where you have until February 10th, 2024, to submit your entry, is is the topics will be old-time rock and roll, old-time religion, and old-time radio. Talk about one, two, or all three topics. Record and send it to DaveKY at mail.com, M-A-I-L.com. We'd love to hear from you. We sure would. Sherwood, like Sherwood Forest for the... Robin Hood. Who 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 is that character? That Al- Alan Adale is that his name? Alan Adale. He was, he was like a chicken in the cartoon, right? And wasn't it uh, Roger Miller played the chicken, right? What was that? What was his song? Is this it? Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest, laughing back and forth at what the other. Yeah, he was a he was a chicken man. Reminiscing this and that and having such a good time. Oodle lolly, oodle lolly, golly, what a day. Yeah, Robin Hood and Little John walking through the forest and they came upon an odd doorway. Said Robin Hood to Little John, Shall we go through? And Little John said, Robin, that's an excellent idea. Let me open the doorway. Ooh, what's this? And Robin Hood said, the other side.
Elwi is waiting to bring you the concluding chapter of Swamp Water next on Magic Shadows. This is Channel 19 in Sudbury, Channel 9 in Thunder Bay.
feeling really low. And life is one long frown. You're moving. Our traffic is like a dangerous jungle. Will you survive? Don't be a drunkard like Gudo. Drunken pedestrians and drunken drivers are the hidden dangers in the traffic jungle. Sober up, or take a taxi, or you could end up dead drunk. Give yourself and your fellow road users a chance. Behave like me. Let's tame the traffic jungle together. There's a kitchen in the country Where the cooking is so fine And now there are two new international flavors in the Country Kitchen range of quality soups. Give your taste buds a treat with Country Kitchen's mouth-watering cream of mushroom. And Country Kitchen's nutritious cream of vegetable comes to you with every healthy vegetable a Country Kitchen can grow. Country cooking from Country Kitchen. Good evening. Friday last, September the 28th, saw in Harare the presentation of the 1984 Advertisers Association of Zimbabwe Awards. Awards for the best commercials and the best advertising campaign flighted during the year under review. Overall, it was not perhaps a vintage year. The continuing recession reduced foreign currency allocations all tended to mean reduced profitability. And reduced profitability, in turn, meant in many cases less money available for advertising. Meanwhile, advertising rates in the media increased. It all tended to add up to less advertising. Still, there was an amount of it, a fair amount of it, and some very good work was produced. In all, 540 entries were placed for the awards in 31 categories, and 88 of them took home prizes. The commercials and the campaign were judged by two international judges, Andrew Fraser from London, representing the Saatchi and Saatchi Agency, and from Melbourne, Australia, Mr. Phil Adams, representing Monaghan, Damon and Adams of that city. Well, they spent two days looking at the commercials before deciding just which ones were the cream of the crop. So without any further ado, let us do the same. Let's have a look at the cream of the crop.
Okay, there you go. And it's interesting that an album just came out called Grunge Light. Have you heard about this? It's put out by a synthesizer player. Her name is Sarah DeBell. She's from Seattle, and she does all these um, classic grunge tracks, like Even Flow by Pearl Jam and Soundgarden Tunes, and she does them on synthesizer. She sort of takes the bile out of them, is the way she describes it on the album cover. I don't know if it's available in Canada yet, but uh, certainly a reason to take your flannels off ASAP. We have Pearl Jam coming right up, but first of all, my desk over there, which is always there. But here is where Natalie sits, and this is where Steve sits, and where Craig sits. Well, it's all been kind of moved, and now this is where Simon used to sit, but it was down there. You get it? A little confusing. Whose desk is this? I don't know, someone lost their desk. What's happening is tomorrow it's the real deal with Master T and the issue is youth crime and that's a big big problem in society. I wouldn't mind showing you where to shop in LA. Anyway that is it for me. Thank you very much for watching. I'm going to leave you now with some bands that really rock out. We have 5440 for you and also one of the hottest bands to come out of Winnipeg. Some people say that they remind them of the tragically hip. We'll see you later. See you tomorrow and this is Watchmen of Much.
rather modestly. For four years, we lived in an apartment in Park Fairfax in Alexandria, Virginia. The rent was $80 a month. And we saved for the time that we could buy a house. Now, this will surprise you because it is so little, I suppose, as standards generally go of people in public life. First of all, we've got a house in Washington which cost $41,000 and in which we owe $20,000. We have a house in Whittier, California, which cost $13,000 and on which we owe $3,000. My folks are living there at the present time. I have just $4,000 in life insurance, plus my GI policy, which I've never been able to convert and which will run out in two years. I have no life insurance whatever on Pat. I have no life insurance on our two youngsters, Tricia. I own a 1950 Oldsmobile car. We have our furniture. We have no stocks and bonds of any type. We have no interest of any kind, direct or indirect, in any business. Now, that's what we have. What do we owe? Well, in addition to the mortgage, the $20,000 mortgage on the house in Washington, the $10,000 one on the house in Whittier, I owe $4,500 to the Riggs Bank in Washington, D.C with interest of four and a half percent. I owe $3,500 to my parents and the interest on that loan, which I pay regularly because it's the part of the savings they made through the years they were working so hard, I pay regularly 4% of it. And then I have a $500 loan, which I have on my life insurance. That's what we have. It isn't very much, but Pat and I have the satisfaction that Every dime that we've got is honestly ours. I should say this, that Pat doesn't have a mink coat, but she does have a respectable Republican cloth coat. And I always tell her that she'd look good in anything. One other thing I probably should tell you, because if I don't, they'll probably be saying this about me too. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little Cocker Spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, 
named it Checker. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep it. Christian Slater of Tucker and Heathers stars with Stephen Bauer from FIFA Parts and Richard Hurd of Planes, Trains, and Automobiles in Gleaming the Cube. Brian Kelly didn't care for the way adults ran things. Adults are predictable. They're living under this illusion that life as we know it is going to continue forever. And he didn't care for the direction the world was heading. I don't know what's worse, you know? Being blown up in a nuclear war having a 7-Eleven on every corner. In fact, there were only two things that Brian did care for. His skateboard and his brother. Then one day, his brother died. was an accident. And Brian's skateboard became his weapon in a deadly game of international smuggling, murder, and revenge. No one knows anything except a kid on a skateboard. 
killed my brother. You're not listening to me. You're the one who's not listening. When getting even means risking it all. Gleaming the cube. For those of you who have just joined us at the Polynesian Village Resort Hotel, aloha and welcome aboard the Walt Disney World local monorail system. During the trip, we request that everyone please remain seated and that there please be no eating, drinking, or smoking. Thank you. Our next stop is the Contemporary Resort Hotel. 
On our way, we'll be passing through the Magic Kingdom monorail station. However, the Magic Kingdom is closed for the day, so we will not be stopping. Bonjour et bienvenue à bord du monorail local de Walt Disney World. Il est défendu de fumer dans le monorail et nous vous demandons de rester assis pendant le trajet. Merci. Nous allons directement à l'hôtel contemporain. Nous allons dépasser l'arrêt du Royaume Enchanté parce qu'il est fermé à partir de 7 heures.
It's time for the monstrous movie on Channel 32. Stay with us for a feature, if you can. <laughs> if you Monster goes on a rampage of murder and destruction. Get ready. <laughs> <laughs> 